Welcome, everyone. This is America's ultra marathon expert, Let'sRun.com co-founder, Weldon Johnson, wearing the new Hoka One One Carbon X shoes. I will be joined by America's number one intersex expert, Robert Johnson, whose article on Castor Semenya went viral. We're at about a quarter million views now. And we'll also be joined by, I guess, just the peevish Jonathan Galt. We got a ton to talk about this week. The Doha Diamond League is in the books. Track season officially underway. We've got Elliot Kipchoge breaking two, version two. I've been to my first ultra marathon, Hoka Project Carbon X. World Relays are this weekend. Peyton Jordan was last week. We've got more Caster Semenya talk. Audio of the week. Deleted thread of the week. And at the end, we have an hour talk with USATF half marathon champion Stephanie Bruce, who has gone from the fringes of the running world to being a two-time national champion. We've got her cool story. Robert, let's get this started. Well, I take that as a compliment. Weldon was meant to be complimentary, but folks, I'm also the voice of the Ivy League, fresh back from my ESPN Plus broadcasting duties. And he also said I was America's expert on the intersex issue. I, I view myself as a worldwide expert, having appeared on the BBC radio. John, did your family in Britain call you to say, wow, I heard your boss. You must work for such a prominent company. No, I mean, I was impressed here on Five Live. But I mean, if we're going to give each other ultra marathon expert, intersex expert, can I just be, if we're going to just make up titles for each other, can I be world's greatest sex machine or something like that? I mean, these are just... I don't know what the base. I would say you guys are informed, but I don't know if you're the world's foremost expert on either of those topics. You can be John. You can be the world's preeminent running journalist, but no one really cares about track and field running anymore. So Robert and I are venturing off to other stuff. Yep, we were looking at the stats. We realized that like the most popular articles in Let's Run history are all like intersex articles. I've gone viral with my article. Before we get to Castro Semenya Weldon. Let's give a shout out to the sponsors who are sponsoring all of our ultra coverage and this week's podcast. Hoka One One. They put on the Project Carbon X event, the first ultra marathon I've ever been to. They're sponsoring our exploration of ultra marathons for the full month of May. And I am wearing, as I've promised, the new Project Carbon X shoe. I don't know what it says about me that I got my Carbon X shoe on Friday and I didn't go in my first run in it until yesterday. I've been wearing it a lot walking around. But I, I kicked ass in Central Park, that's all I can say. My dogs were, they're at a new level now. Shoe coming out May 15th on HokaOniOni.com. They put on a crazy event, six hours live streaming. I'd never been to, to an ultra, and most ultras aren't done like this. It was very fun, and Jim Walmsley walked away with the 50-mile world best and then fell apart. Well, Hideaki Yamuchi broke the 100K world record, so we can talk about that a little bit. He broke the 100K world record. Oh, sorry. Fake news. He won the race. He won the race. Nobody was breaking the world record in that heat. 80 degrees and sunny, or 80 degrees in the sun. Thank you, Hoka. And also, I haven't taken any CBD oil for the podcast in a while. Here it is. That's a little Floyd to Leadville, the tincture going underneath my tongue. You want to save 15% on CBD oils? Go to floydtoleadville.com and use code RUN2019. Now 15% off for Let's Run visitors. Oh, wow. He's actually taking it. Proof Weldon, he uh, puts his money where his mouth is, or in this case, he puts the CBD oil where his mouth is. So last week, we started off with Castro Semenya, and let's do it again this week. And, you know, last week when we were recording the podcast, it was just like an hour or two after we'd all woken up and, and seen the news that, that uh, the IWF had, had won the case. 
And as the week went on, it was really bothering me how I realized this article was being, this story was being covered in quote unquote mainstream press. To me, it was borderline journalism malpractice. Every article started off with some comment about naturally high testosterone levels. And I just like the average person who doesn't follow this day to day has no idea what's going on. And it hit me when I got an email from my mom, who is not a big track and field fan, but follows sports and is an athlete herself. And she sent me some email and the way it was worded, it was so confusing. I'm like, she's got no idea what's going on here. Actually, I spoke to her after I wrote my article, which again has gone viral worldwide thanks to the power of Twitter, really. Facebook as well and Google. But I think it was because the tweet was so succinct. It said, are you confused by the Castor Semenya story? And then mentioned something like, we imagine you are because here's what NPR and BBC, Washington Post aren't telling you. But my mom, when I talked to my mom afterwards, I was like, what were you thinking? She's like, oh, I thought like the way these things were written, that they were contrasting her to a transgender person. Like, you know, like, you know, transgender people, obviously have elevated testosterone. And I'm like, no, I think they're just, I don't know. They're trying to confuse you. They, they don't mention the fact that she's X, Y. They don't mention the fact we have it for a fact. Now testes, she has testicles internal, not ovaries. So I just sort of put that out there. I think I helped clarify some things out. If um, I'm still debating, maybe trying to get with Weldon and writing a letter for the New York times, because they published an article two or three days after the initial news came out. It's called The Myth of Testosterone, which to me is one of the dumbest articles I've ever read. And apparently this woman has written a book about it, which doesn't make any sense to me. Well, you could read the book. I think mom was essentially was thinking that Castor was perhaps transgender trying to compete in the female category. And then the way all the, all the articles were written, she's just like, oh, this is the traditional woman with high testosterone who they're not letting compete. And she's like, that doesn't seem fair. When in reality, it's a very complex situation. She's definitely what I think 99, everyone or 99.9% of people would call intersex. And so then the question becomes, what category should she compete in? The open slash men's category or the protected female category? And the IWF has said, you know, she can compete in the open unless she reduces her testosterone, which we at Let's Run.com have always supported. And it's pretty interesting. She's definitely intersex. And why these intersex athletes seem to congregate in the 800 is something that I think scientists are still trying to figure out. But some new stats came out today. I think that it said that what's seven out of a thousand athletes of, of their athletes are intersex, which seems very high. Yeah. The IWF has issued uh, two statements on its website. Yeah. Almost 1% of the elite athletes in the IWF or women's athletics are intersex. And it's way higher than that in the, um, 800, you know, there's a lot of confidential information that they don't want to release names, but, um, I think they said it was 140 times more likely to be an elite 800 runner than you are just to be intersex. But, you know, one of the things that I tried to focus on when I appeared on the BBC was sort of, and, and John listened to the interview was I basically, my friend who was a, you know, she's speechwriter for in the past for democratic candidates of note females, but former track runner. She's like, look, when you go on there, just focus on the fact that someone has to lose out on this. Is it going to be Lindsay Sharp and all these other people that are X, Y, or is it the small percentage of the people that are, I mean, that are XX or the small percentage of the intersex women X, Y. And to me, it has to be the intersex women just by a numbers game. 
I was most sort of encouraged by all the emails I got from people thanking me for writing the article. I got a few. It's actually interesting to see how how it's, how it's the response has been different. I've gotten a ton of emails. Let's say ninety percent of them are positive, a couple negative. But if you go to Twitter, and they you know they had a study about two weeks ago about how liberal Twitter is. Twitter people, most of the comments are negative. So it's it's pretty interesting. Yeah, I think people just like to be negative on Twitter as well more than being positive. Generally, you'll get more criticism than people patting you on the back. My my question though in this whole situation is. The people who are who think Semenya should be able to compete and who are against ha- having to lower her testosterone, I'd just like them to answer a question. Do they believe there should be two categories? And if so, where would they draw the line? Because you have to draw the line somewhere between male and female, okay? And the IAF has attempted to draw that line based on testosterone, which I think is a pretty good place to draw it. It's maybe It's not perfect, but there is no perfect solution. So... What happens if you get someone who is intersex, but even has even more male characteristics than Semenya? Someone with a penis who has even higher testosterone, but they also have some for- sort of difference of sexual development, and they have some female characteristics, but look like someone. They're someone who most people would categorize as male, but they are partially intersex. Does that person get to compete? Where is this line being drawn? Because I have yet to see anyone who supports Semenya say exactly where that line should be drawn. Thank you, John. Maybe you were the one that gave me that advice when I went on the BBC and it wasn't my friend, Victoria, but that was one of the things I was trying to ask this professor. They had me debating like, okay, my basic thing is, do you believe we should draw a line? Because if you say no, then we can't debate this. But then if the answer is yes, where do you draw it? She kept saying like, I want to be inclusive. So I, t- I took that to mean, okay, well, what is the, I should have, and John's sort of critique of my radio interview was, okay, you should have asked, you know, what does that mean? I, I just took it to mean, I said, well, so Bruce Jenner could win the Olympic decathlon and then a week later win the Olympic heptathlon at the end of the Olympics. And she's like, that's a scare tactic. But she wouldn't answer the question. I didn't ask her flat out. But thank you, John, for making it the same. I mean, I think one easily could draw the line saying, oh, okay, intersex, they compete in the female category if they want to. But then that would beg the question, where do transgender athletes get to compete? And I think honestly, without the emergence of transgender um, athletes and sort of, I mean, it's kind of, I don't know if ironic is the right word, but Bruce Jenner, one of the, the world's, probably in the history of the world, maybe the most famous decathlete. I don't know. He's on the Wheaties boxes. Just the time where track and field was in is very popular. Now, Caitlyn Jenner has done so much for transgender awareness and rights and that sort of stuff. I wonder if without the emergence of transgenderism, transgender athletes and sport as an issue, if more people wouldn't draw the line sort of against caster. Yeah, I mean, the transgender thing, it's its obviously different, but I, I do think if the IAF had ruled in favor, if the CAS had ruled in favor of Semenya, I think that probably would have helped transgender athletes' cases who are trying to compete as as the gender they ident- identify with without treatment. Before we wrap up this Semenya testosterone talk, can I just talk briefly about this, the myth of the testosterone in the book by Dr. Katrina Karkakas and Rebecca M. Jordan-Young in their excerpt that appeared in the New York Times. Yes, as, as Ross Tucker said, it's hard to prove like in, in an individual event, like people with the highest testosterone might not do the best, but to act like testosterone isn't really important for sports is, is so absurd. Like, you know, and, and like the world record for women at 800 meters, like age eight and nine is like two. It's almost the same as men. It's like two seconds off. It's like 222 versus 224. But 
when they go through puberty, it, it, there's a gigantic gap. I mean, it's what, 12 seconds off. It's like six times as much. So that I, I can't believe that people that consider themselves to be feminists make this argument because what else would explain why women are 10 to 12% behind men in, in all these track events? You're basically saying that women are just inferior athletes. They don't try as hard or something. It's just so insulting. And, you know, the other thing that confused me is they act like it's inhumane for Semenya to take these medications to lower testosterone. Most people can do it by just taking a birth control pill. There's millions of women on birth control pills across the country, across the world. So, and no one's saying she has to do that. She just doesn't have to run the 800 meters as a woman in professional sports. She can run other events. She can run, rec- you know, a- as an amateur. And there was one other thing that really annoyed me in some of this coverage. Uh, and there was a tweet by author writer Jessica Luther that encapsulated it for me. She says, I'm sick and tired of all the people saying something like, Semenya has done nothing wrong. She has competed fairly before going on to trash her rights and other a body in order to protect other women. It's racist and sexist and also exhausting and sad. I just think that's totally unfair. I'm not racist. I'm not sexist. I have an opinion on this issue. I don't think Semenya should be able to compete in the women's category as she currently is. I don't think that makes me racist. I think I'm trying to make, I'm in favor of fair competition between women. And I think if you've got Semenya, not that Semenya isn't a woman, but she has high testosterone, one of the dividing factors between the sexes. And to me, I just don't think it's fair that she's competing in these races. We've seen the outcome. She hasn't lost an 800 meter race since the start of 2016. I just think the fact that I hold an opinion on this that is different to hers doesn't mean that I'm racist. Like I, I'd like an explanation for how it makes me racist or how it makes me sexist. I just don't think that's fair. It's unfair for people on the other side to just call racism or sexism if the, someone disagrees with them. Well, I think that in the, in the year 2019, they, people like to use that slur because it shuts the debate down. I think it's very common. And I was really hoping when I was on the BBC, they were going to accuse us of being a racist. I was really hoping that was going to be the accusation because then I was just going to come up with two words, Eric Schoeniger. And I don't think most people know about Eric Schoeniger, but Eric Schoeniger was a 1966 uh, women's downhill world champion. And she showed up at the 1968 Olympics and they did a test and they're like, we have some news to tell you. You are XY. And she couldn't believe it. Like she had raised her whole life. She was a woman and it was shocking. And since learning that person that learning that she er, uh, transitioned to male and has fathered children is now, I mean, if you look at, take a picture of him and take a Wikipedia, looks like a normal guy. So they did this to a white Austrian in 1968. So please, like, this is not about race. This is not about, you know, and, and that was one of the things I thought I was really good at in, in, in the BBC appearance that I showed up was Castor said she wants to inspire the youth. To me, this is about inspiring the youth, the next generation. If you're a young girl and, and you look up on TV and, you, and you're dreaming of being an 800 runner and, and you think, why are all those women intersexed? That's not going to be inspiring. That's going to discourage you. And we've gotten emails from people who have kids and they're just watching track. And we know that Caster Semenya is a woman. She's not a man. But little kids look up at the track. And this email was like, my kid said, why is why are the boys running against the girls? So that a four-year-old can sense that something's different there. But adults can't do it. Yeah, but 
in terms of testosterone making a difference, when we talked to Stephanie Bruce at the end of the podcast, she talks about how one of the reasons she got into running was when she was a young kid in the fitness test, she'd beat the boys. And as you get older, you know, you're not beating as many boys. But if you're a world-class woman, you're beating like 98% of most boys. So it's, it's pretty interesting. And another thing she sort of pointed out, I'm like, you guys wanted to know why women are doing so well in their late 30s running or mid-30s. And she's like, women get more testosterone as they age, as they approach menopause, sort of the ratios change, which is kind of interesting. So we'll have more testosterone talk later, but let's turn to track talk. I mean, we're almost 20 minutes on Castor Semenya. Um, if this was the final time we saw her on the track, what a run, 154.98 in Doha, season opener. And people always wondered if she's sort of been holding back a bit. I, I never really bought that argument. But this is only the fourth time she went under sub-155. And to open the season like that after running a 5K a few weeks ago, a great run for her if this is the final time she's seen on the elite stage. But she said she's going to fight these regulations, so we may still see Castro all year competing. Well, I don't think we're going to see her all year. I mean, she's legally – she's not allowed to compete in any Diamond Leagues the rest of the season. The, the earliest she could compete – Right now, as the rules state, is the world championships in the 800. She could run like a 5,000 or a 200, but I don't think that's going to happen. So, until, I mean, until these rules are overturned, she's not, she can't compete on the Diamond League. Lawyers, John, lawyers. She'll get lawyers. She could run a 5K, right? As you said. But I mean, that race got the most attention. But I don't know. Do, you, do we don't, I mean, maybe there's not much to say about that one. Semenya won it. Francine Saba was second. She's also affected by these regulations. And American Ajay Wilson, third, sort of posed to be the standard bearer in this event if these rules are not overturned. So, I mean, think how differently Ajay's career would be if she was winning all these races. Should be a two-time world champion indoors. Should be the world champion outdoors. She might be an Olympic medalist because, remember, she didn't make the final because she had two ble- women believed to be intersex in her Olympic semifinal. She'd have a very different career. But she is the favorite now for the 2019 World Championships, assuming the rules don't change. Well, if we're going to talk about people missing out because of intersex issues or unfairness in the women's 800, I, I don't think we start with A.G. Wilson. She's still young. She can be the face of this event, maybe even all the way through 2028 and when we have to host the Olympics here in the United States. But how about the woman that lost the most to me is, is Alyssa Montano. I mean, Alicia Montano, Alicia, excuse me, the John, thank you. You know, if, if, let's go back to 2012. If you take out all the intersex athletes and, and dopers, she's the gold medalist. She never even won an Olympic medal. So that's all I'm going to say. I don't want to be accused of, of saying who's intersex and who's um, doper, but that's my, my personal opinion about it. And, you know, this event in general is just going to be completely different than it was around that time. Yeah, times are going to be slower as well. You're not going to have Semenya telling people out to 156s or 157s, um, which RJ Wilson ran 155 in 2017, American record. But let's move on. There were other races in Doha. One of the ones that caught my eye, the men's steeplechase. Now, be honest, guys. Did you expect, when you saw the start list of this race, that Hillary Bohr would be contending for the win and would have the lead heading into the final barrier of the race? I'm glad you went there first because I was just looking at Doha. I'm like, I'm going to bring this up. They're not going to mention it. No, I did not expect that. And I started yelling in my apartment. I was like, yeah, go. It was so exciting. It's why I watch track and field. 
I have no idea what the broadcast was like in the U.S. if they even got behind it, but it was shocking to me. He was up there leading on the backstretch, kind of looking over his shoulder like, what the F is going on? We should have maybe had him as a guest on the podcast. He got a PR, and El Bacali, who was fifth at the bell, just he's the class. He was the class of that field, silver medalist, and you know, class one out, which it often does in track and field and horse racing. We can talk and conduct a derby too if you guys want. But what a run by Hillary! I just he was looked so exhausted coming in. I think maybe if he could have stayed a little more composed, a little more relaxed, he could have won it. But it's, there aren't many upsets in track. But watching him run really inspired me. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, I was generally behind the scenes here. What we'll do is we'll assign each person at letsrun.com will be assigned a certain event to, to write about. And so I was not writing about the steeple. And so I was sort of working on my event. I look up the steeple. There's probably about two laps to go. I'm like, holy shit, Hillary Boar's up front. Um, then it's like the bell. I'm like, holy crap, he could win this thing. It was just, it was awesome to see him going for it. And El Bacali, for him, some redemption because he for so often in the last few years he's been the guy who's sort of been pushing the pace up front only to have Conceslas Rudo run him down and outkick him in the home straight we saw it in uh, the Diamond League final last year unforgettable and so for him to sort of turn the tables he didn't obviously Conceslas Rudo was not in this race he had a little uh, injury issue that he had to pull out but for him to be the one kicking someone down from behind was a pretty cool flip of the script and the other thing is you know the Diamond League the season opener, there aren't that many upsets on the Diamond League circuit, but the season opener is probably that is going to be where it's going to happen because these guys haven't raced for a long time. We haven't seen them against each other. So that's how you get you know, a 17-year-old winning the women's high jump, which we also saw um, the girl from Ukraine, Yaroslava Mahuchik. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. But yeah, Boz was, I think, Boz race was the highlight for me. He got second, 808, third fastest American ever. And there was also a good men's 800 as well with uh, Donovan Brazier, Nigel Amos, Emmanuel Courier. That one was very close down to the wire with Amos pulling out the win. Yeah, the, the men's 800 to me was disappointing in terms of the time. I think it was 144? 144.2, yeah. I thought for sure we'd see a 143. But back to Bohr, John, I was like thinking to myself, where did this come from? 808.30, right? He's only one-tenth of a second off number two all-time in America. 808. 31, maybe in 808.20, I think. 808.4D is Hillary Boar's time. 808.30 is Stanley Cabane's time, number two all-time U.S. So right there for number two. I was thinking, like, where did this come from? Because I knew that he didn't run well at World Cross, only 60th. But then I did a little research and was reminded that, you know, he did run, well, he got fourth at USA's and Cross. But then three weeks after that, he ran 13.14 for 5,000 indoors. So obviously he was. That's how she shows you how sick World Cross is. He runs thirteen fourteen and then like gets his butt spanked at World Cross. Yeah, but let's not pretend all the guys who are beating. I mean, there are a bunch of Brits in front of him. No way, all those guys are running thirteen fourteen. John, when he ran thirteen fourteen, that was third. Who beat him? And how fast did they run? Didn't his brother beat him? It was uh, Emmanuel Bohr, I think, was one of the guys who beat him. And then I think there was one other stud who might have been in that race. I would have to look it up. Folks, if you ever want to go to the archives, you can just. Click on archives in the top right of your homepage and then go to any date. Oh, Cheserek. Cheserek won that race. As they're looking that up, remember, five-star ratings on iTunes. Please, thank you. We need a new name for the podcast. We're serious about this. We need a name like just for the overall podcast. 
help us get picked up in the rankings. But this thing is really taking off. International audience. John and the Brojos. Yes, John and the Brojos. Rojo makes a fool of himself and John says it. When I was getting ready for the BBC BBC interview, I, I like put up a podcast. I'm like, hey, I'm going to be on the BBC in like 20 minutes. I was asking for some advice. And people were like, come on, guys, chip in. No one's telling this story right. We got to really help him. And then one of the best quotes, this should be like message board post of the week. We should have an award where we, we should hand out carbon X shoes to people. And someone's like, Rojo screwed. He can't turn into Jonathan Galt like he can in the podcast to save himself. Yeah. Maybe we should have given carbon X shoes to the post of the week instead of we're doing, we're going to give away stuff to like the, you know, the best post about ultras, but could have, we could have just done best overall posts, but we didn't do that. Yeah, Edward Cheswick, thirteen oh eight, Emmanuel Bore, thirteen ten. So did Emmanuel Bore run USA Cross too? Yeah, got second behind Shadrach Kipchichia. So yeah, do we want to go any more in depth on that eight hundred? I mean, I thought Brazier looked pretty solid. He didn't have great positioning, but didn't didn't give up. I think that was a big positive I took away from that race. He worked his way up for third. Sometimes we'll see if he's out of it. He'll sort of just. I'm not going to say he's not trying, but he's you, you can see he just sort of mentally gets out of it and disconnects from a race sometimes. That didn't happen in Doha. He was running hard all the way. He you know, couldn't overcome the deficit, and he, but he, that was because he was against the two best 800 runners in the world. Nigel Amos and Emmanuel Correa were the best two guys in the world last year. So for Brazier to get third in that race against a lot of other good guys, very good for a season opener for him, and I think we the best is yet to come, I think, from Donovan Brazier. Yeah, it was a great way to start the Diamond League season. That was the first men's race on the track of the whole Diamond League season, and you had the three best going at it. So it was a good run. I feel like now that Donovan's part of Alberto's group, I honestly feel like the mindset changes. You know, they're they're, they're taught to be the best. I feel like the possibility of quitting sort of somehow exits the mind. But one thing about the Diamond League, so do we want to see them go race like, what is it, eight times the rest of the year, the same three guys in the 800 every time. No. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think for some of these distance races, the same eight guys running up and having these fixed fields, that's going to solve our sports problems. No. No, I, but I do like to see big matchups, and we do have a few that were announced this week. Uh, Michael Norman and Noah Lyles, they're going to be racing each other over 200 meters in Rome. I believe that's June 6th. I'm just double-checking the date right there. Yes, that's correct. And then in Shanghai, so next weekend, we've got Abdurrahman Samba and Rai Benjamin, the wow. second and third fastest men ever in the hurdles. Those two are racing each other in Shanghai, May 18th. That is the matchup. We didn't see it all in 2018. People wanted to see it, and now it's coming next weekend. So that is going to be exciting. So some, And th- I think those matchups are great. We don't want to see them every week, but we don't want to wait until Worlds till we have to see it. So I think that's going to be very exciting. Speaking of the 800, is, is Amos still with the Oregon track up? Yes. I mean, guys, we got to remember, he's a guy that ran 141, right? At like 19? Seven years ago at the Olympics. Crazy. But again, he had uh, he had Radisha towing him out. I mean, he's run 142 since then, but unless you have, it's very hard to run 141, but it's a little bit easier when you have a guy running 140 up front towing you along. Yeah, but it's good to see him sort of get his career back on track. Remember, this is the guy that liked to be the DJ and kind of live the lifestyle, and he's only 25. So he's kind of gotten it going together. Um, you know, at Worlds in 2017, he won a bunch of races, but it was only fifth in the Worlds. Although, okay, John, let's show your expertise. Who won the 2017 World Championship 800? 
Pierre Ambroise Boss of France. No hesitation. Very good. Silver medalist Adam Schott. Th- bronze medalist Kipigon Bet of Kenya, who has since been popped for doping. So uh, I'm trying to look. I, again, we can see what John's doing right now. His eyes were glancing towards it looked like a TV. Were you looking that up? Or was that no, up your- I knew that. It was too quick, John. I was there. He he was he won. It's the fucking world championships, Robert. Like, and some the random French guy who hadn't run a race. Well, he wasn't random, but he hadn't won a race all year. It was totally out of nowhere. Like, it was a crazy race. He should have won. It wasn't even that fast, which uh, I think it was only one forty-five winning time. No, one forty-four point six. Jonathan Gall, folks. <sighs> all right. See, I'm not perfect, but yeah, that was interesting. But no, Robert, to say Nigel Amos, nice to finally see him back on track. He's been one of the best guys in the world for almost the, the entire last half decade. Since 20, he was 2014, he was the best guy in the world. Probably 2015 was close to it. 2016, I think he was banged up. 2017, he was the favorite coming into Worlds and blew it. Didn't run well. 2018, he was the number two guy in the world behind Korea. It's not like this guy, he hasn't been running 141, but... I guess just 2016 was the bad year. To, was the year to have a really bad, a bad time to have a really bad year. Yeah, I'm just saying. That's I mean, to say that like, oh, this is Nigel Amos is back. He finally won. He won like a couple of diamond leagues last year. No, I'm just saying it's good to have him back in general, John. It looked like for a while that he might be going away. Well, it didn't really look like that to me, but well, he ran 141 in, in, in 2012, then he ran 144 in 2013. So that's not good. 2014 and 15 were better. 2016 was bad. So since he's come back to America, he's he's been consistent. Okay. We need some field event talk. We had two standout performances in Doha. 17-year-old Ukrainian high jumper. I had never heard of her before, even though she's like world youth superstar. Yaroslava Mahuchik. I will eventually by Doha, I promise to know how to announce her name. She won the whole thing. One point one meter ninety-nine. One ninety-six. Oh, excuse me. She's jumped 199 in the past. And Daniel Stahl, the Swedish um, discus thrower, like was just crushing Diamond League record after Diamond League record. No one had ever thrown under 70 meters, and he did three throws over 70 meters. Well, this is the year to get the Diamond League record in the discus because uh, it might not be a Diamond League event after the end of this season. So if you're going to get it, get it this year. Yeah, John and I were actually debating that. Like He had three throws farther than the Diamond League record. But he only broke the dominating record twice because one of those throws didn't beat his own record. Like if he threw it like in round two, then he surpassed it in round three, but then round four wasn't bad. Like they weren't all in order, but pretty amazing. And he, he um, I, I put out a good tweet of him sort of dancing. I like the guy's personality. Like it's pretty good. And while we're at it, you can watch, you know, like these shot put and the pole vault commercial free if you subscribe to NBC Gold. It still drives me nuts that there's no like, track dedicated track feed like you can't do that like they'll cut to the field events i would love to have just a camera on one of these distance events if i'm paying 75 dollars like and i guess the way that works is because the pe- the same cameras maybe that are well i don't know i i agree one more thing on daniel Stahl. he was the let's run quote of the day today and i thought it was really great there's a competition at the pavo nomi games in finland and if you break the finnish all comers record in the discus or javelin you win your own private island and his quote was, it will be fantastic to jump and swim in the sea straight from the sauna. I have not experienced that in Finland yet. The cabin should be fit for winter and big enough to have friends and family to visit. My summers will be full of javelin throw in the near future. I think that was a mistranslation because he's a discus 
thrower. But when I retire, I would like to spend my summers fishing and relaxing. The cabin should be made from wood and it should be functional. It should have a fireplace, small kitchen, and a dock where one could sit and watch the evening sun with a girlfriend. I mean, doesn't that sound terrific? The fin- watching the uh, sunset in Finland I don't, on your own private island. That sounds pretty cool right there. Daniel, if you're listening to the podcast, I'd be, I would love to come visit if you do an island. Not very handy. Maybe I could help you build a sauna, though, or whatever you need. Yeah, we can record a special edition of the podcast live from Daniel Stahl's Finnish Island. All right. Anything else on Doha, gentlemen? I think that we covered the major stuff. Helen Abiri beat Genzebe de Barber in a, in a great women's 3000. That was pretty interesting. It's fast times all around there. Obiri won it in 825.60. De Barber was second, 826.20. Uh, then you had the world the world record holder in the steeplechase, Beatrice Chip Coetch, was fourth in eight twenty nine. So that was a, that was a pretty fast race. And Dean Asher Smith won the two hundred pretty easily. Dalila Mohammed crushed everyone in the four hundred hurdles. Ramal Guliev won the two hundred. You guys can check out the Let's Run results page for more. But I think we covered the big stories from Doha. All right, do you guys want to turn to deleted thread of the week, audio of the week? Or maybe like sponsored segment of the week where you guys ask me anything about the ultra marathon. How about road race of the week? Well, what about Elliot Kipchoge? Are we not going to talk about Kipchoge's big plans? Let's go to the road and then get to that. All right. We got to talk about Kipchoge, but before, let's talk about Prague. The marathon there, Israel's Lorna Salpeter, who was born in Kenya and came over to Israel to be like a nanny, I think, for someone at the embassy. Didn't picked up running in Israel is now run two nineteen in the marathon. That's pretty ridiculous. So congrats to her. I think she's only like the third European woman to break two twenty. But America's Kellen Taylor was in that race. She finished in two twenty six, uh, which is very similar to her PR. I mean, she ran two twenty four in, in Grandma's last year, but that's a little bit wind dated. So I would say they're probably similar in terms of. I, I think when she ran 226 at the time, 224 at the time, I'm like, look, this is probably equivalent to about a 226. And hey, proven right yet again. But um, she did it the hard way. She went out in 71 for the first half, still held on for 226. What do we think about that? There's a thread up right now saying the women's Olympic, Olympic trials will actually be interesting, and they're giving Taylor and Taylor a shot. Weldon, what do you think? Of course, they'll be interesting. They'll actually be interesting. They were already they were interesting last time. They're going to be interesting this time. I don't think that's a debate. But anyway, Weldon, your thoughts on Kellen Taylor? Yeah, I think a two twenty six going out hard that hard shows she's at the you know she's not at the Jordan Hesse level, but she's knocking on the door at the trials. I think a lot of people probably saw the trials what is like a big four with Craig Hesse. Flanagan and Linden. What about Huddle and Thiston? Oh, well, they were new. So, big six. <laughs> I knew I was leaving somebody out. So, yeah, take out, excuse me, we'll take out Flanagan because we know she's probably not going to even really be there. And Linden's getting old. But Flanagan's not going to be there. Why'd she have surgery then? Maybe she'll be there. Maybe she won't. Actually, she'll probably will be there. But Sisson. Yeah, I mean, it's just going to be great. But now I would say, yes, you put her in the mix. And uh, I will be rooting for Stephanie Bruce. I explained why in the podcast I'm allowed to root for her since when I was back in the day training, she came through Flagstaff. So that's official. Stephanie Bruce will want to be in that mix. But the one thing she hasn't figured out since her childbirth is running a good marathon. 
But yeah, there's still sort of the question is like, yeah, okay, after the big whatever, five or six, can anyone be in that equation? And I think, yes, Kellen Taylor's in that equation. I, I don't think so. I mean, look, the, she, what do you mean in the equation? I just don't think she's going to make the team. We have those all those women ahead of her. I think Amy Craig, Molly Huddle, Emily Sisson, Des Linden, Shalane Flanagan, Jordan Assay. I think at least three of those women are going to show, or I would say probably four of those women will show up to the trials healthy and fit. And that's going to be the battle is because between those women, I think we saw it in the last trials with Cara Goucher, Amy Craig, Des Linden and Shalane Flanagan. Those were the four studs on paper and they went one through four. And I think Kellen Taylor is a good marathoner, but she happens to be competing at a time where the U S has never been more competitive at the women's marathon. We have two major champions. We have a world championship medalist. We have a woman who's run two twenty and is trying to break the American record this fall. It's just, we had a woman who just ran two twenty three in her debut in London. That's a minute faster than Kellen Taylor's ever run. And that was on, you know, with the benefit of the wind. I just think Kellen Taylor's a good marathoner, but you, you need to be doing really special stuff in the marathon right now to be in contention for that Olympic spot. And I just think she's a cut below them. I don't really see a situation where she makes the team. I agree 100% with John. I, I think there's a big six and they can have the trials race with just those six. Now I'm not saying I, I want everyone in. I want top three going, but those big six aren't losing to other people unless something goes wrong. But there's question marks about a lot of those big six. Let's talk about them. Everyone except for Sisson. Sisson seems to be made for the marathon. She knocked it out of the park in her first marathon. She's young. She's doing great. Hase, hey, she was injury prone. She missed a whole year. But I, I would say Hase and Sisson I'm most confident in. Craig's 35. She's been running terribly recently. By the way, wasn't she supposed to run last week? Did she run in Stanford? Supposed to run somewhere. Yeah, she got the she got the world championship stand for, standard in the Stanford 10K. Okay. So she's turning around. Flanagan's having surgery. She's 37. Linden's 35. Huddle's 34, I think. Huddle, to me, has not necessarily proven she can run a fast one. So maybe you could put – I mean, she's been second in New York, though, which is better than anything. We were talking about Taylor four years ago. I think she's got a shot, but she's going to need some of those people. I mean, it, it, could she beat an aging – Flanagan's not there. Could she beat an aging uh, Linden? I think she maybe could. So – yeah, I guess she could get third. Oh, actually, sorry. Amy Craig did not race. I didn't see her in the Stanford results. Sorry, I think I, I made that up. I don't I don't think she did race at Stanford. So I, I think there's a lot of question marks about the third spot and if it stays hurt. So yeah, then she's right there. I mean, she's definitely the clear-cut seventh best, I think. If everyone's on their A game, yes, she's seventh best. But they're getting older, as you said. Robert's just like, oh, Emily Sisson, no problem. Um, I don't know. Stephanie Bruce beat Emily Sisson last year in the USA 10K on the track. So it's not like everyone shows up and runs their absolute PR at the age of when they were 32 years old. People get older, they're hurt, they come off stuff. And I, th- would you guys agree this was a run in the right direction for her? Yes, she faded, but she still ran 226 going out at 222. Oh, I think she deserves a lot of credit for going out in 71. A lot. I I, I was rooting for her four years ago. I, I like the underdogs. I like the, the smaller teams. I don't want the entire team to be the Nike team. I mean, they already own USATF. Their logo is going to be on the jersey regardless. So, Hoke NAZ Elite, Ben Rosario, Kellen Taylor, good luck to you guys. Hopefully, this will motivate you. Just record me doubting you, and then you can play it when you get top three. Because we know they're all listening because Stephanie Bruce is on the podcast at the end. 
Yeah, I guess I will say, Robert, you did make a good point. Things do go. There are question marks about some of the top women. Things do go wrong in the marathon. That said, I do think it's quite unlikely that Callan Taylor makes the team. But yeah, if they, those, if she can't, because also remember she's in her thirties as well. She has to come into the trials fit, healthy, and ready to rock it, and that's not a given as well. But now that I'm learning that being in her thirties is an advantage for a woman, she's only thirty-two too. Plus, I'm rooting for her. Her maiden name is Johnson. According to Tillistopja, I did not know that. She's probably a relative. So one of the many powerful Johnsons. But well, then you had some other races you wanted us to talk about. But let's talk about since we're on road racing, let's talk about the other big development last week from the roads. Ellie Kipchoge will not be doing a fall marathon major. He instead he will be going sub two yet again. I'm not gonna lie. I'm not happy about this. John reminded me that I wasn't happy about it the first time, but I'm very unhappy about it this time. I'm tired of step two. I feel like it's a gimmick. I want him to fail. Well, this one's called the Ineos, Ineos sub two. Ineos 159 challenge is actually the name of the event. So I think it's cool, you know, that he went out and got this, a huge sponsor. They're a big sponsor of a cycling team. I'm glad there's some money coming into the sport, but haven't we already seen this? And we sort of were against the first event because it was they're just trying to break two and not follow the rules. But if you watched the, the Nike breaking two, you couldn't help but be inspired. It ended up being pretty cool. But, like, I could find a downhill marathon tomorrow and, and get someone sub two. I mean, it wouldn't be as easy as I'm saying it is, but I could. you could do it on a downhill course somewhere. But what do you want him to do in the fall? I mean, I guess maybe go run in New York or something like that. He, he go back to Berlin and run a. He did run a two hundred one thirty in Berlin, so you're ninety seconds away, but you still got to improve three or four seconds. And so I think now, yeah, if you control everything else, that's how you get the ninety seconds. But didn't we just do that a couple of years ago? Yeah, my I actually I think it's good that he's taking another shot sub two and. I'll admit when breaking two, when the news was announced about that, I was pissed off. I thought it was going to be stupid. I thought it was just some marketing gimmick. I didn't think he had a prayer at breaking two hours and watching the event. I changed my mind after it. I thought it was well done. I thought two hours, 25 was closer than I ever thought he was going to come. It was crazy. So I actually didn't think that breaking two thing was ended up being bad. I thought it was good. And I think, to me, I mean, look, what's he going to do? Is he going to go back to Berlin? Who cares? Like, he's not going to... I'm sorry. He has to break... He has to lower his time a record-eligible course by 100 seconds. He already ran pretty well. He ran very, very well last year, obviously, to break the world record. But they had good conditions. I guess the pacing could have been a bit better, but you can't bring in... You can't have people uh, for him to draft off of at that pace and have it record-eligible. I just don't think he's ever going to run sub-2 legally under IAF conditions but I do think if he breaks up to in a, a race like this Ineos challenge where he has paces and people and he's following people the general public is just going to see sub two hour marathon broken they're not going to care if he doesn't do it people were still inspired by two hours 25 at breaking five and Kipchoge has said repeatedly he runs to inspire people that's what motivates him in his career he's already got the world records he's won London four times it's not He's not running out there for the money, though I'm sure that he's being compensated nicely for this attempt. He's running to inspire people, and I think if he runs 159 and shows other people who are closed-minded that this might, that they think it's not going to happen, and he does it, 
that to him is is inspirational. That to him is a big accomplishment. I think it's one of the few achievements left for him in the in the sport is sub two. No matter how it's achieved, that and a second Olympic gold medal, I guess win all the majors as well. So it would have been cool to see him run New York, but break two hours. No matter how it's achieved, that is like really the big white whale that's left for him and for everyone in the marathon. So I, I'm excited to see what he can do. This is not right. We're gonna have to hear about this for years. Sub two. Well, I guess if he broke it, it would be all right. Then I wouldn't have to hear about it for the next 30 freaking years. Like, first of all, if he does do this, I hope they just get rid of the tr- the, the, the pacers jumping in and out. That is so stupid. Have him run behind a car, the triangle thing blocking the wind right behind him. Last time we were debating how much of it was the shoes, how much of it was the car, how much was the pacers. Get rid of all that crap. Put a car in front of him and maybe let him do it. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm serious about this. I just we're gonna hear every marathon has to be fast. Why? I want to see him win a race without a rabbit. He's only done it once in his career. Go to New York, win that. I don't need to see sub 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 two exhibition. I just I don't like it. And now I'm again, I hope he fails and I'm maybe even rooting against him in the Olympics now, which is crazy because it's just I don't know. I understand that he wants the motivation, but I don't know. We're not gonna know how much of his shoes, how much of it is this, how much of it is that. I don't know. I it's just not satisfying to me. Yeah, John, would you have a problem if you ran it right behind a car? The sub two event was cool, but okay, if we're really trying to block the wind and we want a sub two, do you, should we just put him behind a bus, an electric bus that won't have emissions, and he just runs right behind that, and that blocks the wind more so than the pacers? How much of a downhill course can we go for, or point to point with a wind behind it? I mean, where do we draw the line? I think. If you found the proper downhill course out of a mountain, you could probably get a step too much easier. Yes. And there was a thread about this. When I first heard about this, I said, I'm going to sponsor somebody to break it first. The problem is you really need a huge downhill to get like a two, eight marathon or to do it. Well, then I think we figured out the math. Maybe I'll write an article. I think you need about a 3000 foot downhill to do it, to knock off about eight minutes, which is a lot. Cause then you're starting the beginning of the race at altitude, but there was a threat and let's run. John, do you remember seeing this? Well, then it was this week I was reading about it. There is someone knows a place where it would be that far downhill. I say that we get on Kickstarter. We say we're going to raise $250,000 and we get everybody to donate. I'll donate a thousand dollars. And, we put on our own event. I think we can do it first, and then we take the stigma away from this, and he'll have no reason but to go to New York. Yes, this is a foolproof plan. Let's find a 208 marathoner who would like to sacrifice their knee joints because they're running straight downhill for the entire marathon just so they can stick it to the most beloved marathoner of all time. I'm sure that this plan will work out flawlessly. I'm going to find a 205 marathoner. John, you're an idiot. They're not sticking it to the marathoner. A 205 guy's doing it to make $250,000. When your average annual salary over there is $600 a year, $250,000 goes a long freaking way, John. And if, John, sponsor plug, the Carbon X shoes. It's supposed to be sort of more of a every man's sort of, I don't know, four percenter, cheater shoe or something. But it's a little more durable. So their, their knees would not be shot. Maybe Hoka would sponsor this thing. Wow. Their knees wouldn't be shot by running 3,000 feet downhill, for, straight downhill for 26 miles. Sorry, there's no shoe. That's, that's why you need a gradual. They're designed for, for ultra marathons. These shoes are designed to last. They're not designed to run downhill for 26 miles straight. Also, Robert, you you said, I, I'm t- I, I don't get it with all these fast marathons. What's up with all these fast? So you'd rather just see Kipchoge show up in New York and run 210? Come 
on, man. If he's riding New York, I want to see him go after Mutai's course record. I don't want to see him going out there and just picking it up and then dropping a 425 and no. mile 26. I'm tired of the same of everything. I'm tired of him running rabbit race after rabbit race. So if New York wants to put in rabbits, I've been urging New York to put in rabbits every at least once every four years. I, I When I'm announcing it to the commissioner of the sport, I will have innovative ideas. We will run New York rabbits one year, Boston rabbits the next year. You know, it'll rotate so that maybe like once every four years you get it in New York. But so if he wants to do that in New York, that would be fine. But no, I don't want to have 210 against the watered down New York field that we often get. I, if it's a stacked field and he wins it in a tactical race, that would be fine. Yeah, I would rather see him go for the for the course record. That would be amazing. Good point, John. Yeah, thank you. He doesn't need rabbits, Robert. If Kipchoge wants to run 204 in New York, he's just going to take it out in 62. And they can follow with him or they can't. But he, 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 we've shown time and again, Kipchoge is faster without rabbits. You know, his world record in his London course marathon. He picked it up once the rabbits dropped off. Maybe they did help a little bit in the first half, but... If he wants to run 204 in New York, he's just going to take it out hard and do it. Speaking of Kipchoge, let's turn to the email of the week. It is about Ilya Kipchoge. All right, here we go. First off, I love the podcast. I preach it to all my runner friends, although most of, almost none of them are nerdy enough to appreciate it like me. First of all, that's fake news. The podcast is internationally famous. I feel like a broken record on social media lately, but there is a crazy double standard with Kipchoge versus Mo lately. In the most recent podcast, you mentioned some Kenyan American saying he thinks Kipchoge's group is clean. Within three minutes, you were talking about Cyrus Ruto and Kipchoge failing the AVP. Cyrus Ruto is, and this is in bold, all caps, coached by Patrick saying, why is no one bringing this up? This is at least as outrageous as Moe's association with Auden. In my opinion, it's worse. If Amy Craig gets busted, don't you think Jerry and Shalane would have some questions to answer if they were racing at a major one week later? No one has to accuse Kipchoge of cheating, but the fact is, this fact is at least worth mentioning on your podcast. Rant over. Thanks for everything, you guys. Tyler M. Yeah, it, it's fair to mention that. Cyrus Ruto, he is coached by Patrick Sang. He lives in Kaptagat. He does not live in Kipchoge's training camp. They do very little training together because Ruto is a 5,000-meter runner. He, he was busted for the athlete biological passport violation, and... Kipchoge is a marathoner, so they don't overlap in training too much. But they do share a coach. I, I asked, when I was in London, I asked Patrick Sang about this, if he had anything he wanted to talk about. I asked him about Cyrus Rudo if he was worried for his reputation. And Sang said, essentially, no comment. He just said, I'm here to talk about the London Marathon. I don't have enough information about this case to comment on it. So he chose not to. I didn't ask Kipchoge about it. But Rudo also is worth noting, he just, for what it's worth, he says he didn't do it. He denies the ABP violation. Right, but let's say let's change the names. Alberto Salazar and Sifan Hassan test positive. You think we're, we're just going to be going? Oh yeah, you know she she doesn't train with Galen Rupp. I mean the the guy has a point. And fine, Albert, maybe Sifan Hassan's too big of a name. So you take one of the lesser guys in the NOP who doesn't train with Rupp, and they test positive. People be freaking out. That's fair. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, yes, but but. There's also been allegations about the Nike Oregon project from several ex team members, so it's a little bit different. There's never been any allegations about Kid Choker's group, but yes, people would be totally, totally freaking out. You're correct about that. Yeah. So yeah, no, it's 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 a fair point to bring up. I, it should be noted. We are noting it right now. One thing that was interesting about the Oregon project, and again, someone needs to remind us next time we bump into Kara or Adam is that's the argument that we need to have. You know, 
So there are your allegations was that the group was doped, but you weren't doped, or maybe they secretly doped you and you didn't realize it. Like they're not saying everybody was doped. I think they're saying like some of the members are doped, but not me. Just because you're in the group doesn't necessarily mean that everyone's in the group is doped. But again, once it becomes more than one person, once one Rosa athlete tested positive, okay, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. When it's two, three, four, then you're then you're more worried about it. You know, it's like Martin Fagan. He was coached by Ray Tracy in, in, in college. Post-college, he, he does EPO. So should I blame Ray Tracy for it? Can I assume he was doped in the college? I don't know. All right, guys. Let's also turn to the deleted thread of the week. I'm going in there now, sort of scrolling down the threads. We have a couple contenders. What will all the Jimmy haters do when he spanks Rupp at the trials and goes sub to 1130? Jimmy? Jim Walmsley spanking Galen Rupp? Is this? Yeah, but why should that? What drugs was this person on when they posted this thread? <laughs> I don't know why Mal- Malmo stopped deleting threads like that. Jim Walmsley is very popular in Let's Run. Um, we could talk about that. I was, you know, Hoka sponsoring us. I went out to that race this weekend. I'd never been to an ultra. He broke the 50 mile record. But wh- I don't get why someone would delete this thread. Like, sure, the guy's sort of trolling a bit, but Walmsley s- says big things. He's talking about going, trying to go to 1130. Even at this 50 mile run, he got the record, but he's trying to like crush six hours. So, a lot of times, same thing at Western States. He said his first time ever, I'm going to smash the world record, the course record. And he runs off course and like passes out. And I talked to his coach, Julie Hinner from college. She was doing the broadcast and she's like, Have you seen the video? And I was like, No. He's like, Don't, you almost don't want to watch it. Like, he's so sort of out of it. So, that thread should stay up. Let me keep going down here. Well, then, FYI, who coaches Jim Walmsley? Is he self-coached now? Oh, John, I'm not the true journalist, John. I'm just a hack. I thought you were the world's foremost ultra-running expert. That's what I was told. I am. Or some people just say I'm a Hoka hack now. I need to find that out. Jim Walmsley actually will be on the podcast next week in the Hoka-sponsored segment. I have agreed to that. So I think you guys will have a lot of questions with that. I feel like Jim... There was one thing that Mike McManus, the sports marketing guy at Hoka, said, and Mike was on our podcast last week. And my apologies for the audio on my side. It was terrible. I was on my phone, and I don't know what happened. But you can hear Mike very clearly. But Mike said, Jim's very polarizing. And I feel like Jim's very popular on Let's Run. I feel like he's the most popular ultra-marathon runner. And I feel like that's because a lot of people with a track traditional marathon background and let's run. I feel like they feel like people go to the ultra because they can't hack it at shorter distances. Whereas I think they all view Jim as this guy can hack it at shorter distances if he wanted to. Well then did Jim himself essentially say he went to the ultra because he couldn't hack it at shorter distances. Essentially like when he was asked, can I do the steeple chase? Or I, I think this was on the broadcast. Maybe you told me about it. Julie uh, Benson was trying to convert him to the steeplechase, and he's like, look, I can't be one of the best in the in the country in the steeplechase, but I can be one of the best in the country or the best in the country in the ultramarathon. No, that's not to say he can't hack it. He's run, he, he was good as these other distances, but he wouldn't be the best. And so isn't the whole reason he said he moved to the ultra so that he can be the best? Um, yes, yeah, so he can be the very best. Right. It was interesting. Yeah. I don't, I think I told you that I was asking cause I didn't realize Julie coached him and I was like, well, tell me about him in college. And she said he would just keep pushing it. He wouldn't listen to me one summer. I said, fine, just do your own thing. And he came back and she's like, if they didn't see a cross that weekend, he would have been, I think she said top 20. And by the time NCA cross ran around, I don't know if, I don't think he made it that year. And she's like, I told him like, look, man, 
you can be an 820 steepler. And he's like, well, why would I want to be that? I'm not going to win anything of an 820 steepler. And she's like, well, you know, you might sneak on an Olympic team. But even just the way he talked about the marathon trials, he's like, with the current qualifying, the marathon would actually be, trials would be his first marathon. And he's like, well, unless I think I can run 21130 on that course, why would I do it? And I was like, wow, he's just wired to try to like take on things that other people wouldn't take on. Not that other guys can't run 211.30, but there's no other ultra guy in the world thinking, I'm going to go run 211.30 on the Atlanta tough hilly course. But his mind's like, I shouldn't even do it unless I can do that. So once again, a reminder that USATF and IWF still haven't figured anything out about the Olympic trials. It's going to be a disaster in the midside unless they get the rules changed. I, I don't think it's that crazy. He basically is like, why would I waste my time in the Olympic trials unless I have a chance to make the Olympics? He's got other things he can do. He can make money. We don't know if he has to run 211.30 or not. That's sort of Weldon's point. Is USATF, I did reach out to them last week to see if they had clarified the Olympic qualifying system. So far, no clarification from them on that. So... Still waiting. I thought you were supposed to get something by yesterday. You, they were hoping to get back to you yesterday, but they didn't. They were hoping to get back because the PR staffer I talked to, Susan Hazard, was heading off to Japan for the World Relays, but she left and didn't get something back to me before she left. So, By the way, the World Relays are this weekend, folks. If you want to watch, they'll be on live. My play-by-play partner with the Ivy Leagues, Bill Spaulding, is going big time, leaving me behind for- not taking me. He will be doing the play-by-play for the World Relays with Otto Bolden, but there are no distance relays this year, so you haven't heard much about it in Let's Run. No DMR. DM- Ivy, the IWF has killed off the 5,000, 10,000, and now the DMR. And 4 by 8s Yeah, surprisingly, you would say they killed off the 4 by 8s because the USA was dominating too much. That's pretty crazy. But also, this sort of shows, you know, like, the IWF said, oh, we're not hurting Kenyan athletes with the Diamond League changes. This hurt Kenyan athletes, and It'll be an interesting question, sort of what, where does distance running sort of end up in the sport? Continuing with deleted threads of the week, and I think this actually shows maybe why the other thread got deleted. Some people complain about one thread, and they don't see the full picture of threads. There's also a thread, Walmsley versus NBA's best in a one-on-one. <laughs> Can Walmsley refocus on multi-sports and become the world's greatest athlete? And also this one, Walmsley versus bowling in the 500. <laughs> Bowling's a high school kid. White Lightning. White Lightning, 998. So, and then also Walmsley caught doping after the race, and Let's Run loves Walmsley. So, I guess Malmo decided okay, there's too many of these. We have to delete them. Uh, should we restore one? I, I, I think. If people want to talk about Jim Walmsley, let him talk about Jim Walmsley. We don't have. Malmo likes to have one thread about perception. By the way, Weldon, your microphone is a little off again. Please speak into it. Like we ha- we've had like 10 threads on Galen Rupp at a time and we don't delete all of them. I-, I don't understand why we wouldn't let people have different threads about one athlete. Also, speaking of Galen, as we're recording it today, May 8th, 2019, is Galen Rupp's birthday. Happy birthday, Galen. 33 years old today. And as usual, I will give my Alberto Salazar praise of the week. When I was talking about Amos being in the Oregon Track Club, I really brought that up because I thought to myself, why would anyone be in the Oregon Track Club? Why wouldn't he train with Salazar? So, Nigel, if you're listening, drive up the road and train with Frazier. That's your weekly Galen Rupp, Alberto Salazar segment brought to you by... Now it's gone positive. Now I've gone all positive. Guys, I do have some college stuff I'd like to talk about briefly. Also, Reddit slams Let's Run, calls the board toxic. That's a perfectly fine thread, I think. Oh, Weldon's still going on the deleted threads, okay. Yes. So how, do we have a winner? 
I don't know which which one do you got. I think we should restore one of these. I like Walmsley one on one versus NBA. <laughs> just had the best title. You know, well, you do have the power to make it so that he can't delete it. You can push a button on there and delete it. Yes, I do. All right, I will definitely restore the Walmsley NBA. You should restore them all and merge them into one, and then he would basically. Maybe we should make. Does Momo listen to these podcasts? Like, I've wanted to replace him for like seven years, but I'm scared of Momo because he's a volunteer moderator. So if we make his life so miserable and undo all his work, maybe he'll just quit. He actually listens because one time we called him Grumpy on the podcast, and then we got an email about Grumpy Malmo. So Uh-oh. you've been exposed. Hopefully he's not listening this far into the podcast. That's true. All right, Robert, college track. Hit me. Okay. What do you got? Uh, I have two things. Performance of the week. This is amazing to me. If I say the name, Weldon will have no idea. John, please be quiet. I'll ask Weldon. Who is Ryan Smeaton? What was the name? Your, your microphone broke up again. Ryan Smeaton. Spell that? I think it's the way it's pasted in my document. S-M-E-E-T-O-N. So I can Google it? Well, if you Google it, you'll find out who he is. <laughs> then you'll find out who he is. The mural's a painting artist in Canada. Oh, maybe. He is Canadian. I didn't know he was an artist. He's the new NCAA leader in the steeplechase. Dave Smith, Oklahoma State. For Dave Smith, Oklahoma State Cowboys. He ran 827.90 at Stanford, which is pretty good. I mean, that, if you're sub-830, you're often leading the NCAA in the steeple. But what amazes me about him is this guy indoors ran like 228 for the 1,000, 407 for the mile, 809 for the flat 3,000. So the gap between his 3,000 PR and his steeple is 18 seconds. Give me a break. Last year, his steeple PR was 854. So I don't see anything about him. Like when I look at him, this is like total stud. All of a sudden, he's running 827 in the steeple. Like Dave finds these random guys. Like remember that guy? Who was the guy that was dunking the basketball and stuff? Josh Thompson. Yeah, sick. Juco turned him into sub four. I mean, his personal best, 155, 229, 353, 812. And now he's running 827 steeple. Well, he's only he's only twenty years old, Robert. People do tend to improve in college. Dave Smith is a good coach. I mean, I don't know. We'll have to ask Dave why exactly this guy has improved. But this is about the sort of time if you re- really have a lot of talent that you start to show it. As a former college coach, college coach for ten years, our life revolved around one thing: winning the conference meet. So I was looking at some conference meet results. What do you think, the guys, and also sort of how the vast some of these conferences, one of the things we liked about the Ivy League is all the teams are into it. And some of these conferences, some of the teams are really bad, and some of them are really good. So, Jonathan, this is the annual segment where we make you look like a genius or a fool. Guess to me, guess the number, the most number of points that was scored in a conference meet by a team last week. Wait, how many conference meets were there? There were only a handful. I mean, there weren't like a million. There was like maybe, I mean, it's a lot of the smaller conferences. Like, Got to be over 200. Since you're asking, I'm assuming it's going to be a lot. Some conferences score, you know, 10, 8, 6. I believe scores 10, 8, 6, 4, 2, 1, which is 31 points per event. Some conferences have almost 33% more. They have 39 points event if you score 8 deep. All right. You, since you're asking, I'm guessing it's going to be quite high. So I'm going to say 224. Not even close. Well, then. John said 224. So I think go higher. 278. Okay. And give me your lowest point totals. For, the- for, for any team or for a winning team? No, no. Any team. I mean, zero. Surely some school scored zero. I'm going to go with like a... Yeah, might have been some zeros. I need to go through to find a zero, but... Okay. The Monmouth University men scored 339 points. What the hell? 300? When the Metro Atlantic Athletic Conference. And it wasn't even like... That's almost 50% of the conference points, I think. 
That's absurd. Well, I don't know. There's 22 events, right? Or 20? How many events? What was there? second place? 339? Oh, my God. It wasn't even half the events. There's over 800 points. And this is a conference with, like, Iona in it. Congratulations, Monmouth. That, that's a... I, I, I've never seen a track meet. I've never seen a track meet score remotely close to that. Maybe it's because I haven't passed results enough, but that, that just sounds ludicrously high. I should do the math per event. I think it's like they're averaging about 15 points per event. So second place was Ryder with 152. I own 116. Manhattan 103. So there's still four. Wait, okay. How many events are in this conference meet then? There was four teams over 100 points. Second place. With 39 points, John, there's a lot more points. One, two. So they go 10, 8, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. 21, 21 events, I believe. Yeah. So there's 819 points. So anyways, that's a lot. Now, the lowest that I could find, there might have been some zeros, but a shout out to the Colgate University women. They scored one point at the Patriot League. Now, again, this is a conference that only has 10 teams in the women's it has 10 teams in the women's conference. They score eight deep. So you think that you would almost certainly score in a relay, particularly American University doesn't enter a lot over the relays. But their only point came in the 4x100 relay where they finished in 51.25 seconds. They were more than five seconds back of the winning team. But one team was disqualified for, for an exchange violation, and they were elevated up to the single point. So One point is better than zero points. That's all I have to say. That's pretty crazy about Colgate. I mean, do they even really have a team? But All right, guys. We have Stephanie Bruce coming up next. Do you just want to go straight there? You guys can ask me some questions or I have a new revenue opportunity in the audio of the week, but we could save that to next week. What do you guys want to do? Well, I'm kind of fascinated by the, by the ultra scene. Like, is it appealing? Well, because there's a lot more unknowns, like Walmsley can really slow down at the end and he's struggling. Like, do you think that, you know, there'll be more intrigue as to who the winner is of these races? Yeah, for me, there was. So, I mean, there's only eight people in the entire race. So that's very different, right? There was two people in the women's race. And only one finish. So Sabrina Little, your only finisher and winner of the women's race. So someone in the left round could be like, oh, this shit's not competitive. But the men's race, so you had pretty good storylines. Like you have Walmsley saying, like, I'm going to break six hours. Then you have Tyler Andrews, who also is an advertiser on Let'sRun.com for his Strive trips. If you want to go to Peru or Kenya and train, check out Google Strive trips running. High school kids, adults, everyone can do it. But Tyler Andrews is like, hey, I'm moving up to this ultra stuff. I'm going to try to break the records as well. And Tyler's a pretty good marathoner. And you just don't know. Like anyone can run the pace for a marathon. It's like that part isn't that hard. So Tyler's ahead of them. Then you've got the 100K world champion, Hideaki Yamauchi. Yamauchi. I can't say. Yamauchi. And he's in the race as well saying he's going to go out slower. And so then Walmsley's ahead and just like crushing it. And really starts picking it up on the flats, running 530 pace. And he only needs to run 545 pace. He's actually looking at the splits here and they're running some in the 520s. And then all of a sudden, the pace slows to like 545. And I tweeted out, like, is he done? And these guys there are trying to tell me, like, oh, no, he can hold on. And I'm thinking, like, he's in a shitload of trouble. And I kind of was right. He held on. He got the 50-mile record. And then right when he gets there, he starts jogging. And then he's walking and sitting on the bench. So it took everything he could to get the 50-mile record. Now, are you in a media truck? Like, how are you following this? No. So they, like, won at 62 miles, right? So, I mean, everything they had was totally first class, full disclosure. They paid for my trip. You go on buses out to the start out in Folsom, which is about 20 miles from the finish. 
And then we get in a bus and we go to maybe nine miles, get out, watch them run by, keep going down. But I mean, they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on this broadcast. It was like the crew that does the Red Bull events. They had lead trucks with both races and the drone flying over, on overhead. So for me to follow it, I would just stream it on my phone or in the car. And then we go to the finish area and they do nine 4.7 mile loops. So there you stay there and you see them every, I don't know, 25, 30 minutes, something like that. So then I would just watch on, on you know, most ultras, that's the thing. You can't watch them. I assume Comrades is on TV, but most of them, you just sort of are getting updates and splits. This, you could actually watch the whole thing. And Tony Rabbit doing full broadcast on for six hours. So my other question was, why didn't they just run the loop over and over and over? Why did they run the other part first? Probably because maybe the other part is downhill a bit. I'm not sure about that. 100, 150, 150 feet downhill, which if you do the math, actually should make that much difference. That should make, I think, like a John Kellogg would say 30 seconds. And it's not The course wasn't perfectly flat, but it doesn't hurt to have a downhill part. And But then Jim and them held back on that part, and the Japanese guy went out harder, so... I'm thinking probably they wanted everything possible to do that. But if you're going to do that, then I would start the race at three in the morning. I feel like if they started the race at three in the morning, then you could have seen if Jim could have broken six hours, but it was so hot. Like I couldn't believe the official temperature was only 70 something at the end because. Yeah. I mean, Monza started in the dark. I think it'd be hard to film obviously if it was in the dark, but can we give a shout out? People always talking about soft Americans and I want to go there. There's threads on let's run like, why do you have to be a full-time pro? What do you do all day with your time? This Japanese dude has won two world championships at 100K, and he's got a full-time freaking job. Why do these Americans, lazy millennials, sit on their butt all day and just run around for a few hours? This guy only runs 60 miles a week. Somehow he's an ultramarathon star, and he told Weldon he runs 60 miles a week. If you only had to run 60 miles a week to be a top pro runner in the U.S., I think more people would do it. I mean, that was crazy, because I was like, how much do you run? And she says, uh the translator said a hundred kilometers a week. And I was like, what? I'm like, no, how much do you run? And it's 60 miles a week. And then he, she sort of says, Oh, maybe 125. And she's like, I'm like, are you sure? And she says, yeah, maybe 500 kilometers a month. And I was just like, Holy crap. How can he be the best hundred K ultra marathoner in the world? And I think that sort of begs the question. People are specialized at certain stuff and detractors would say, Hey, well, this stuff isn't that competitive, but this guy can do that. No, it confirms my belief that the Japanese are really good at going a long distance at like two ten pace. Yeah. I mean like this guy, Hideaki Yamauchi, he's, he's made to run the hundred K. He's very good at it. And even here he said he's going to go out at six twenty pace, six hours and 20 minutes. Are there any records we can break? Well, why don't you just pick one up and try to break like, yeah, that's what I used to think. Robert, you were the ultramarathoner of the group. You, you, you could have done it. I've done a 30-mile run in practice. I mean, hell, the article's got a 1,000 Facebook likes. I'm not convinced Robert could run 30 miles at any pace right now. So I think just finishing that distance would be a massive achievement for him. By the way, well, we got to correct for the record. Colgate does have a big team. I've seen the photos on their website. When I was coaching at Cornell, I remember talking to it. It was a different head coach, but they were telling me like they don't get like any admission support. So it's really hard to have a good team if you don't if you aren't recruiting. All right, guys, we got to start getting these podcasts shorter because we're way over an hour in, and we've got an hour pretty much next with Stephanie Bruce, the USATF half marathon champion, in our Hoka sponsored segment. We when Hoka said, you know, hey, you guys 
want to talk about ultras for a month? We're like, sure, great. And they're like, do what you want. We're like, okay, we'll have a Hoka athlete on the podcast each week for five minutes. But, you know, she won the USA Half Champs, and I've always wanted to talk to her. So one hour with her. We're going to have Jim Walmsley next week. So, Robert, you can get all your ultra questions out then and say that you could actually beat him even though you're a fat ass and slow. <laughs> Robert versus Walmsley 101, one-on-one basketball. I think that's the big question. I'm still taking Walmsley every day. <laughs> He's very tall. So, yeah, I'm taking Walmsley and everything. And he has Air Force training. So, yeah. No chance for Robert. All right. Till next week, everyone listen to USATF half marathon champ, Stephanie Bruce. She's got a cool story. Um, talks about how the, well, this part isn't cool, but the death of her father really helped inspire her and make her go from a mediocre high school runner or pretty good high school runner to a fabulous runner that she is now. And the resurgence of her career or continued emergence of her career after the birth of her two kids getting her first national championship last year at 34 and her second this past weekend in Pittsburgh at the age of 35 with a PR in the half marathon. Stephanie Bruce next. All right. We're joined by Stephanie Bruce, the newly minted USATF half marathon champion in Pittsburgh this past weekend, her second national championship in the last year, both those coming at we 33 last year. You're 34 now. I'm 35. 35. Ooh, wow. I mean, that's pretty amazing. First national championship at 34 at the 10K at the Peachtree 10K last year. And number two this weekend in a PR in Hilly Pittsburgh, 110.44 over Sarah Hall and Emma Bates. First of all, welcome, Stephanie. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. And congratulations. Thank you again. <laughs> You've had quite the career, and we're going we're gonna to touch on that. Like, you came through... Way back in the day, I was living in Flagstaff. You came through my apartment. So you're officially the one runner I can root for. You stayed in my apartment or been in my apartment. Like, I feel like that predates being a journalist. So you're the number one runner in the hearts of Let's Run. But let's just cl- let's clarify. Like, I didn't come to your apartment like to date you. <laughs> no, no, no. Exactly. <laughs> I came to your apartment because my teammates knew you, and you happened to be living in Flagstaff. Yes, yes. Let's get that clear. Dave Monaco, founder of Bring Back the Mile, was out in Flagstaff for the summer, and some of his teammates came through, and I had no idea, seriously, like 10 years later. I think it wasn't until World Cross in Uganda that I put two and two together that you had been through there. Um, but now, of course, I take credit for fostering a little something with your running career. Um, <laughs> but now it's pretty amazing like how, how far I think you've come since then, and really even since the the birth of your two kids, Riley and Hudson. Who's older? Riley's older. So well, I don't, I'm not sure where I want to start. First of all, let's go back to this weekend. I mean, what's it like to be, you won by 20 seconds. What's it like to be coming down, you're winning a national title. I mean, how does that feel? Like people dream of that day. Yeah. I mean, I like, I get goosebumps, like trying to relive it and replay it. But um, it was very much like Petri. Like it just feels like, is this really happening to me right now? Like it doesn't, it doesn't feel real. And maybe that's because like winning national titles are new to me. You know, someone like Molly Huddle, who's won 28, she's probably like, Oh yeah, here it is again. But for me, like, it just feels like this, 
short five to six seconds where everything like a movie montage of your whole life is just like playing in your head and you're like gosh there's so many things you want to say there's so many emotions you're feeling but you don't have enough time because the finish line is coming and it, it is it's it's literally what you train and you dream for and then and then it just happens like that yeah well, I'm glad you're appreciating it and I hope Molly doesn't take them for granted because the rest of us dream of winning a national title and it's pretty cool. I mean, I'm, when you won in Peachtree, like at this point in your career, were you thinking I'm never going to win one of these? I did. I definitely had that. Um, it was like my storyline was you get second and you get third. Um, you get out kicked all the time and you just, you're never going to win because I felt like I was getting better in my career, but everyone else was getting so much better at the same time or at a quicker rate than me. So I really didn't know like if I was going to win uh, at the age of 34, I thought maybe the best years were behind me um, or that people, like I said, were just better than me at that point. But um, that kind of showed that I was wrong and you can change your narrative at any point in your life and your career. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I remember when Paula Radcliffe was regarded as the girl who got second and third and got outkicked at the end of races. So people can definitely change their narrative. Um, I mean, it's pretty amazing. 5k PR this year as well. Yeah, that and you know, it's funny to look back, like I obviously knew that time wasn't that good. I ran what, fifteen forty four, but the cool part was like I didn't really care that it wasn't that great of a result. For me, it was just affirmation that I was moving forward and having progress in my own like training and racing. And I think if I jumped on the track right now, you know, I could probably run fifteen twenty pretty easily. So that shows me that um I was just moving in the right direction. I just happened to race sometimes when I'm not quite in my tip top form. Oh, 15, 20. I mean, it'd be 25 seconds ahead of your best. I think that just sort of shows how you've, how far you've come as an athlete, how confident you are. It seems like everything is going very well with the whole Hoka NAZ elite group. You guys seem to be firing on all cylinders. Yeah. Do you have more people to train with now? I mean, how, how or is it just, you can thrive off what, what the men are doing as well? What is it? I mean, the women are running, everybody's running well, but like, I don't know, is it, is it a tight knit team or is it more like what the women are doing separate from what the men are doing? How, how would you say that dynamic is? Yeah, I think the dynamic, it's very tight knit. I mean, it's one of those, like each time someone runs some, someone on the team runs something, everyone else like gathers confidence. Cause they're like, I'm doing the same training and I don't even know how far to go back, but if you go back to 2016, you know, we had two fourth place finishes at the Olympic trials. Scott Fobble was fourth in the 10K. Kellen Taylor was fourth in the 10K. And then at the marathon trials, uh, Kellen was six. Matt Yano was six. Scott Smith was, I think he was 13 or 14th. Um, yeah. And then once Coach Ben, like, kind of feel like he figured out the marathon cycle and what to do, everyone just started like nailing it with the two Scots running 212 last year um, at Frankfurt. And then of course this year, Scott getting seventh at Boston and running 209. And then Kellen ran 224 at Grandma's. And then Alphine runs 226. I'm like, I'm going to get kicked off the team soon <laughs> if I don't run 226 or better because that's what my training partners do on a bad day. 
on a bad day now. So yeah, I think it's just very exciting to all be on the same page. And we have all these younger kids that have just joined the group, like our British athlete, Alice Wright, she just ran 3156 in the 10,000. And my husband, like at the age of 36, runs 2847 or whatever in the 10K. So I think it just shows like, we're just, we're just trying to put our names in the hat and, and be contenders. So um, it's very exciting to be part of. I'm glad you're talking to me. I hope Ben's not upset. You know, we, he didn't quite make the Let's Run squad for the World Cross Country team. No, that's okay. <laughs> it was a last minute shot. Wow, I didn't see the, I didn't look at the results. 28-48 this, this weekend. Yeah, that's solid. It's really That good. is solid. I know, especially because he has been pacing the women. <laughs> so, you know, if you think about it, like he really didn't have a lot of training, but I think just all the years in accumulation, like he just believes in his strength and um, he's definitely not done yet. He's still holding his own, which is very exciting. Yeah, that's cool. Um, and... I guess the one thing that he has that you haven't done in running, I guess, would say make a world's team. Uh, world track team, correct. He still got that over me. Is that is that a goal for the summer? Let's talk about the rest of this year first, and then we kind of go back and look at your career because I think people will get a lot from just learning, you know, how far you've come, how you've persevered. I think there's a lot that people can learn from this because I don't know. Even though we know success doesn't come instantaneously in running, we still want it that way, or we think there's some secret to success. I assume you would say that, you know, that's not the case and you sort of figure it out along the way and it, it's a, it's a building process, but what are the goals for the rest of the summer? And I assume everything kind of points to Olympic marathon trials and maybe track trials next year. Yeah. Um, so I am running the U S 10 K championships at the New York mini, uh, the beginning of June and trying to go defend my title back there. And then I will be running the 10,000 in Des Moines at USA's, um, you know, and I think after last year taking third there, um, I'm trying to turn myself into a 10k runner. And I think I have gotten to the point where I don't have to run a track season to feel confident that I can run a track race. Um, and before this year started, we kind of set out what's 2019 all about. And it's really about trying to make teams trying to learn how to win races and just put myself in position to get ready for 2020. And so every race I run, you know, I have that in the back of my mind, winning, making teams. And so I will very much trying to make that team uh, this summer on the track in the 10,000. And then I will be running a fall marathon to be determined. In terms of the fall marathon, like is it thinking there to get, do you have this? Do you have this time standard? What is the woman's time standard yet? It's uh, two twenty nine thirty. I don't have it because it only opened this year. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, is that the thinking there, just to make sure you get that out of the way? I assume the trial. I mean, I assuming the trials are going to be faster than that. But you never know what the weather and that course is not easy. Or do you just did you just want to get in a marathon before the trials, regardless? I mean, it's a few things. It's, uh, you know, you can get the standard by running the time and by being top 10 in a major. So um, those will be the two aims. And I wanted to get one anyway, because I just love running marathons. And even though everything is all about next February, uh, at this point in my career, like every race I run is just as important. And I don't want to put all my eggs in a basket because the way the U.S. is, I very much know I could go run 224.45 and take fourth place next year in Atlanta. That's just how good America is right now. Um, and so I'm just trying to make sure I make the most of like every time I step on the start line. And so that'll, that'll be the intention this fall and whatever marathon I run. Yeah. I think you've shown you can 
race very well when racing frequently. Last year you did, or I guess two years ago, you did World Cross in Uganda. And then I think less than a week later, raced the uh, 10K at Stanford. I don't know. Like doing stuff like that, is that at this point of your career, you just like racing, you want to get the races in, or or do you think it like that helps you perform as an athlete? Or is it like when you're younger in your career, you put too much emphasis on just making sure everything was perfect. And sometimes I feel like that can backfire, right? Like if you're just too focused on one thing, like if all your eggs in one basket, sometimes mentally, whatever, maybe even physically, we don't respond well. Yeah, I think it's a combination. You know, you can't do too many of those back-to-back races. Like I did that two years ago. And then just last year, I ran New York. And then I ran CIM a month later. um, And that worked out great. But I think to have longevity in the sport and not get injuries or burnout, you can't do too many of those back-to-backs. But along the lines of what you said, I do think there's a mental component. And Sometimes I just believe when I'm fit, I'm fit. It doesn't matter what race I'm going to run. And I was guilty of it when I was younger. Uh, Like before 2012, I had run 229. And I think that was like the seventh best time at the, uh, in the country going into the trials. And I just tried to like beat all my training leading into the trials. And I tried to be better than I was that last cycle. And I was just so anxious and uptight come to the trials. I probably overtrained and I was so worried about making the Olympic team. Like I didn't just run my own race and the trials are the only race I ever dropped out of in my career. Um, and I'm, you know, embarrassed that I, I put that on such a pedestal and I should have just treated it like any other marathon, but it's cool that that was the only race I've ever dropped out of. And I think I learned a lot from then till now. If you now if you make the team in the marathon, it'll be a cool story. You know, it'll be bookends, mm-hmm. but it's interesting. Cause I was looking back trying to see him like, and I was on Tilla Stapshit's statistics website, and I didn't. They don't show DNF sometimes, and I was like, "Oh, I guess she didn't run the marathon trials that year. Maybe she got hurt." No, I ran. <laughs> I saw your track trials results, and I get one thing I would say. Sort of, let's kind of transition talking about your career as a whole. But it seems like you're running so well and everything now. But I would say that I don't know if this is a resurgence since your kids or how you want to describe it. But the one thing. That, that hasn't matched up then is, is your marathon. I mean, you've gotten 10th at a couple majors since then, but I feel like your marathon time could be much faster. What you're running in 10 K and a half marathon, this sort of stuff. Now, do you, do you agree with that assessment? Oh yeah. My marathons have sucked. <laughs> I mean, like people have tried to say, like be proud of yourself and I'm always proud of my effort, but they're so not indicative and it's definitely been, frustrating the last couple of years, but I feel like I know why. And at least I have answers to those uh, questions. So it's not surprising to me, but it's also like, you're only as good as you run. So I can't just say, I believe I, um, this, I just have to go out and do it. Um, and so I'm ready to do that now that I feel like I solved a lot of the, the puzzle um, in those marathons. Right. I mean, I feel like it's sort of one shows the high expectations for you and sort of how far you've come. Cause you know, you can get, 10th or 11th at New York and people are like, Oh, it's, it's a, that wasn't a very good race for Stephanie. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think back in the day, people would have been like, Oh, that's a pretty good race for her. Yeah, I agree. Let's go way back. Stephanie Bruce in college, you went to UCSB or maybe let's go back high school. Okay. How good a runner were you in high school? Um, what were your options when you were going to college? That sort of thing. 
Yeah. So, you know, I would say my early high school career, I was not that good. I think my freshman year, I'd run 5.55 in the mile. And honestly, I was just a kid who liked to party and eat fast food. And I didn't show up for practice a lot. Like we lived wow. in, we lived in Phoenix and it was super hot. So we had to practice at 6am. And as a 16 year old, that was just not very appealing to me. So um, my poor coach, Dave Van Sickle of Xavier College Prep, he really thought I was way better than I was letting on. And he wished I would just show up to practice more um, because he just saw something in me. But I just wanted to be like a regular teenager in high school. Um, And my mom and dad, they encouraged me as well. And I told them, guys, I'm trying as hard as I can. But honestly, I probably wasn't. And then um, my senior year, actually, my dad had been, he was diagnosed with prostate cancer uh, about six years before that. And his health was like kind of declining uh, my senior year. And he was getting treatment in New York at the Memorial Sloan Kettering. And I decided to go take a visit out there when I was uh, 18. And I went out to visit him. And he, uh, he was in the city and I was staying on Long Island. And the morning I woke up to go visit him, I went for a run. And then I got back from that run. And my stepmom had called and she's like, Stephanie, your dad actually passed away. And I was like, no, I'm about to go visit him. You know, it was this like surreal moment where I'm like, that's impossible. I'm literally going to see him right now. And he actually died while I was on that run. And, um, and as an 18 year old, something just changed in my life and in my head. And I started to look at running as not a chore or burden something I had to do is something that I get to do and it kind of became like a gift and then um then amazingly I had run 527 in the mile my junior year and then three months after my dad passed away um, I ran the state meet and I ran 458 in the mile and I took second place and it was kind of this huge breakthrough that I just started to go through more pain in races and I believe that I wasn't going through enough pain. And um, that's, that's what changed my mentality, really. And then um, I basically had taken a visit to uh, UC Santa Barbara. And it was before I ran that time. And Coach Pete Dolan was like, all right, well, 527 is pretty good, you know, keep in touch or whatever. Um, You know, he's just doing that. And then uh, I'm heading to prom after I ran the state meet and I'm in the limo and I get a phone call. He's like, "Uh, hey, Stephanie, this is Pete Dolan. Uh, I just saw that you ran 458. (laughs) I'm like, oh, you want to talk now? It was that classic, like I had now run something that got his attention, which obviously is how it goes. And um, he wanted to offer me a scholarship to come run there. And um, yeah, so I ended up going to UC Santa Barbara for, for college. Wow. I mean, that's an amazing story. I, did, I didn't know the full story about your dad. I mean, it made me almost tear up, but <laughs> it, it tends to it tends to get people. <laughs> I can see that really resonating. I mean, I can't imagine going through that, but I mean, running is like a gift, right? I mean, I think we've all felt that feeling when we're out there and I don't know, it can be hard and tough, but it, it's also like, I don't know, a beautiful, wonderful thing. And, and yeah, what for what your dad had been through mm-hmm. pushing a little harder in a race, like, yeah, that's kind of easy, right? It totally is. And I, I think I, even as an 18 year old, like I had so many choices after you go through something traumatic, like it would have been very easy to go down one path. And I was so lucky I found running um, because I have a brother who was my best friend and 
I think he took my dad's death another way and he became a drug addict over the last 10 years and I found running. And so it was just amazing how like when people say like running can change lives, it like it really can if you believe it and you let it. So I'm, I'm really thankful that I found it and it's a part of who I am today. Was your dad a runner? He was. It's like, I don't remember that much of it, but um, I do remember him like taking me on some runs and getting me involved. Um, he never like competed, competed, but uh, he, he was a runner. And how'd you start running? I guess I, I usually start with people's high school careers, but I think we all start running before then, you know, like, did you run before high school? What were you ever drawn to the sport? Like, did you run in PE class as a kid? I mean, what sort of, what are your earliest memories of running? Yeah, it was PE classes mainly. We had like the presidential fitness awards where you had the mile shuttle run. And that was really appealing because like I could beat boys and I was like, this is pretty cool. Um, and so I think it was just the competitive side of me because I grew up with three brothers and I wanted to find a way to beat them because they were stronger than me in every other way. But I was the only one that like really ran. Um, and so that was cool to be able to to like have that one strong suit. It's like, okay, none of my brothers do baseball and soccer, you know, but Stephanie runs. And so I, I wasn't really in love with it. Like I think until like my, I experienced my dad passing away at the end of my high school career. Yeah. I think a lot of people started with the presidential fitness test. Mm -hmm. My brother and I did. We just, we were kind of competitive with the other kids and we were all pretty good at the other stuff. And then we would just like kick their butts and the running we're like, Hey, this is kind of fun. And I didn't, yeah, I didn't think I wrote, no way did I love running them, but I thought I was pretty good at it. And kids like being good at stuff. So I kind of stuck with it and eventually fell in love with it. So you go to college. Now Pete Dolan's recruiting you, which is a good thing. I guess originally you were going for education and maybe to party a bit, but now you're buckling down and running and you're pretty good in college. But yeah, like what was your top finish? Maybe quickly talk us through your college career. Yeah, um, I had kind of a unique college career. I when I got there, of course, like every high school kid, I'm like, I'm a miler because <laughs> I ran 458 and I get there and he's like, you're going to run the 10K. <laughs> and I'm like, you are crazy. But um, he could just tell with the workouts that I did, like I showed that I was better at longer stuff and like the speed didn't come that naturally to me. Um, so I slowly started to move up and um, I ended up I think it was my it was my sophomore year. I won the Big West Conference in cross country. Kind of an upset that actually the the favorite stopped and started walking with like 800 to go. Uh, and so I just all of a sudden was in second. And then I see her walking, and I'm like, okay, I guess now I'm in first. Um, so I guess you could say that was an upset, like gimme win. Um, and so I, that was the only like cross country conference uh, championship I won. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And then, um, and then, yeah, I would say I had kind of a middle of the road college career. Um, I, the only big race I ever won was the Roy Grayak Invitational in Minnesota. So I won that. And then he decided he wanted me to try the 10K my junior year. And back in, this was 2000, gosh, 2004, 2005, uh, excuse me, 2006. We went to Stanford for that first meet in March. Um, and at that time, the like auto qualifier for NCAAs was 33.40, if you can believe that. <laughs> Back then, that was like a really great time. And I went out in my first one and I ran um, 33.27. And that ended up being the school record. And that showed Pete like, okay, like this girl is going to be a 10K runner. And we were pretty happy with it because 
back 12 years ago, like 33 mid was, was really good. Um, yeah. And then I ended up making it to NCAs and, uh, a couple weeks before I actually started to feel very bad in training and I was just tired and heavy and we didn't really understand what was going on. And I took my first blood test and we found out that I had a ferritin level of four and they were like, you are literally uh, a dead person walking <laughs> because that was like dangerously low. Um, and that made a lot of sense. But, you know, NCAs was a few weeks away and we didn't really have any time. So I started taking an iron supplement. We tried to just get through whatever training we could. And I thought I started to feel better. And I took another blood test and we got the results, but Pete didn't tell me before the race. He's like, I just want you to just go run. And it was the hardest race I've I ever had run to date. Um, and I think I was in 10th place with a lap to go. And I just like shut my eyes and I started sprinting and I ran like a 70 second last lap and I finished eighth place, which was the last all American spot. And I ran over to Pete after, and I was like, Oh my gosh, like I did it. I, how is my iron? And he's like five. Oh my God. <laughs> it had gone up one point. But then when I, when I look back, I was like, Oh, I thought I was like good running 33, whatever 30. That makes so much sense that like, why I think I'm where I'm at now because I wasn't even like my potential back then was nothing now that I think of like what my iron and blood levels were but we just didn't know all that we weren't like a very high-tech school he didn't even do anything after he was like yeah just keep be taking that iron I guess <laughs> you know we didn't like look into it at all we were so old school I'm reevaluate reevaluating your college career like <laughs> I know. You've been an NCAA champion. I mean, no, that's what's funny. Like, I look back and I'm like, man, I think my best finish at NCAA Cross was 46th place. Um, and that was the year, actually, this was more special. Our team had never made it to nationals. And my freshman year, I said, I want to take this team to nationals. I believe we can put Santa Barbara on the map. We made it for the first time. I think we were 29th place at NCAAs. But by the time I graduated, um, we took ninth place in 2006, uh, and that was the, the best Santa Barbara's ever done. And I was so proud to be part of that team, um, to be ninth in the country. And yeah, I felt like that was more important, like leaving my legacy on Santa Barbara, not just as an individual, but what our team did. And then, and then my last year, I was fifth at NCAs in the 10K, 2007. What year did you win Roy Griac? 2006. Gosh, I'm so horrible at this stuff, and Ben would be cringing. I think 2006. Eighth at NCAs with a ferritin of five and running Roy Griak. That sort of, I think, shows the potential to be a pro runner. But, okay, so yeah, you graduate, then what? Like, bags of cash come your way? And no, because, yeah, at that time, I know it was really like fifth and eighth were like good, but it wasn't really, nobody was knocking on my door. Um, but Greg McMillan was starting the group in Flagstaff uh, with Adidas. And he said, I've been watching your college career and I really think you could be a great marathoner. But I just, I still was like kind of stubborn and I'm like, I'm a 10K runner. And, you know, I don't think I want to move back to Arizona because I was from there. And so I started to explore some options. Um, I had just met Ben 
uh, who was uh, now my husband, but we had just met in 2005 and we had been dating for two years. And I'm like, man, I just started dating this guy. I don't know if I want to like leave. So I move up to San Luis Obispo where he was training under Mark Conover. And I tried to figure out what I was going to do. I took a couple of visits and I ultimately um, got a opportunity to train under Oregon track club with Frank Gagliano. And so I moved up to Eugene in the summer of 2007 when everyone goes to Eugene in the summer and they're like, this place is awesome. It's sunny. It's beautiful. And I should have visited in like November. Uh, so I get up there and he's like, all right, you're doing uh, you're doing 400s in the cold teeter. And I was like, what? <laughs> cold teeter has run 159 and 800. I forgot Max coached OTC. Yeah. So all these people that like, I'm like, what are you talking about? I run the 10,000. Like, how am I going to do this? And it wasn't Gag's fault. He was just, he was more a track guy. And I think his limit of coaching was the 5K. And here I was, that was the lowest I was ever going to run. So I told him, I don't think it was the right fit for me. But now here I am. I just moved to Eugene. Like, what am I going to do? And I ended up going to the running store. And this guy was working there. And he he says, uh, yeah, what have you run in the 10K? And I told him, and I said, I just ran the 10K champs at Tufts in Boston. And he's like, what'd you run there? I said, I ran 33.26 on the roads. And he's like, oh my gosh, you're going to be a marathoner. And I was like, whoa, hold on a sec. Um, and that ended up being Brad Hudson. And so uh, I started working with Brad um, and I worked with him for the next two years with Dathan Ritzenheim and Jason Hartman. And the three of us were kind of in a training group there together. And uh, you're connected to like everybody. This I, is I am. I am. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then Eugene was a really tough time, though. Those next two years were really rough. I, I had glimpses of like hope. I ran the 2008 trials in the 10K and I was 12th, but I was getting lapped by Karen, Shalane and, and Amy Bagley. Um, and so I was far from having the thought of making an Olympic team. But I still in the back of my mind was like, I'm going to make the Olympic team in the marathon one day. I know it. And I just like believed it. Um, and so I kept getting injured and I felt sick. And Did just, you run a marathon at this point? No, I hadn't yet. Um, then Brad was like, I think we should try one. And he's like, we're just going to train for a few weeks and let's just get the distance in, like not worry about time. And so he had me run tw Twin Cities. And I went out and I ran 240. I ran splits of like 120. 06, 120, or something like pretty dead even. And he was like, okay, like this is your distance. Um, and that was cool because again, I wasn't firing on all cylinders at that point, but it was kind of just a trial run. But then, yeah. Are you sponsored by anyone at this point? Are you working? What are you doing? I am uh, nannying for the Powells that coached at Oregon for Marisa and Andy Powell. I, I pretty much helped raise um, their son, Owen. Wow, another connection. Yep. And I, I babysat for like five to six hours during the day so I could train in the morning, evening. And then I house cleaned. I cleaned toilets. I helped this lady like when she was coming back from surgery, I basically was just cleaning her house and doing errands for her. And I don't know, kind of like the bottom of the barrel jobs, <laughs> but whatever I could do to make myself train during the day. Um I did that. And then when I would run road races, like I would do well enough that I'd start getting like a thousand dollars here, $1,200 here. Um, but then after I'd have like a period of training, I'd get injured again. And I was like, this is such a vicious cycle. Like 
I was, I was unhappy and Ben, Ben had moved up by this time. He joined OTC. He started, his career started to take off. He ran 826 under Mark Rowland and then 819. Um, but I was very unhappy and, uh, I questioned whether I should keep going. I looked up being a lawyer, being a doctor. I asked whether we should have a baby. Like I was, I was all kinds of crazy at that point. Um, but something inside of me just was like, maybe you should just keep running and, and try to figure out the answers. So I saw a naturopath and they said, have you thought about food allergies? And this was like 2009 where food allergies were not really talked about or no one had really brought them on the scene. And long story short, I ended up taking a test and they found out I had celiac disease which is an autoimmune where you're allergic to gluten. And honestly, that was the reason I wasn't having my iron high. I wasn't absorbing anything. And so I had all these issues. I was literally from eating bread and pasta. <laughs> it sounds so simple, but that was the biggest like problem I had. And um, basically, after I got that diagnosis, I started looking up all the good coaches in the country and I sent emails and I said, Hey, I think I can be one of the best female marathoners. Will you coach me? It was just so bold, (laughs) but I just, I, I believed in myself for whatever reason. And I always thought there were things that were just thrown against me that was holding me back. And one got back to me and it was Greg McMillan, who I had said no to years before. And he said, I still believe in you. Like, let's have you move to Flagstaff. And I moved there in April of 20, oh gosh, 2010. And then whatever, nine months later is when I ran 229 in the marathon. Wow. That's pretty cool. And that's it. <laughs> you know, like, what are the symptoms? You didn't, you just would feel lethargic when running or like, did you have any idea that you may have had it? I mean, no, you feel, I just felt bad all the time. I woke up feeling hungover without even drinking. I had a headache, um, like my brain fog. I forgot things. I was like losing weight, even though I felt like I was eating so much. And when I look at pictures, I was like very puffy in my face. Um, and then, yeah, the inflammation in my body, I, I would just have sore hamstrings and all these injuries from not doing that much. Um, A week before USA's, I was running a track workout and then all of a sudden I had to stop and I had a broken sacrum like the next day. So there were just all these things that were pointing to something was really off. Um, And my theory is that it, it is genetic and usually a parent gives it to you. My theory is my dad had it and we never knew. And when celiac is left untreated, it can lead to cancer because it's the same as like malignant cells in your body. And my theory is he had it and no one ever knew. And then basically it got passed along to me. Wow. I mean, for a lot of reasons, it's great. You figured it out, the running and your health and everything. Okay. So you run the 229 for Greg. And then, so that's 2010? Uh, 2011, Houston. Okay. And then... What, like, the kids come soon after? Before I go on. Yeah, so. Um, my timeline here. For sure. At that time, we had also launched Picky Bars, which was really cool because that was like something Lauren, Jesse, and I were working on while Lauren and I were injured. Um, and it gave us something to kind of like distract us while we were both injured. And then it was so cool that before I ran Houston, Lauren came back and won the uh, 5K on the track at USA's, like out of nowhere. Um, so it was really cool that, like, we were getting back to 
the level that we were at before while we were starting PPR bars. But anyway, and then, um, then Ben and I got married a year later and he moved out to Flagstaff. Uh, so now we're here with the group and then, you know, we have been together for about seven years at this time. So of course I'm thinking about kids and I'm thinking, how do you plan that? Do you stop your career? What do you do? And I knew I wanted kids before I got much older, but there was never a good time to really stop. Um, and so after the disappointment of dropping out of the marathon trials, I told myself to just rally, let go of it, move on. I came back and I ran the track trials and I got eighth in the 10K. Um, I think I had run like 32, 24 uh, at the trials, still far cry from making the team, but at least I was kind of moving up. And then I ran the Honolulu Marathon that December, and I was third there. I ran 2.32, which felt like indicative of um, my PR because Wilson Kipsing won it that year, and he ran like 2.12. And I'm like, okay, well, if Kipsing has run 2.04 and he runs 2.12 at Honolulu, does that mean I can take off <laughs> seven minutes from my time? <laughs> you know, 32 in Honolulu is very good. It's hilly and hot. Right. You know how that works? Exactly. So I started to be like, all right, maybe I'm like a 227 marathoner, but you're not until you do it. Um, and then we ended up uh, leaving the group and it kind of disbanded. And then Ben, my Ben coached me 2013. And that was one of the best years of my career. I, I was second at the, uh, excuse me, I was third at the 15K champs. Um, I was fourth at the U.S. Half Marathon champs. And then I was second at the 10K champs in Peachtree. Um, so I started to have all these like second, third, fourth place finishes at U.S. champs. And I was like, okay, like I'm really like, I'm moving my way up. And that's what made me believe, like, I'm glad I decided to keep pushing po forward. And this is what I'm supposed to do in my career. And then um, in August of 2013, I found out I had a stress reaction to my femur. And instead of getting depressed, I said, well, I don't, why don't I try to get pregnant? And then I got pregnant two months later. Um, and so that kind of worked out. And I had Riley in June of 2014. And I said, this is great. The Olympic marathon trials are 18 months away. That's a great amount of time for me to, you know, get back on it, try to get back stronger and make it to that start line and try to make the team. And then when I was six months postpartum, we got a little surprise and I was pregnant with our second child, Hudson. So yeah, that really threw a wrench in my whole <clears throat> plan and life and what I thought was supposed to be. But looking back now, it was the best thing that could have ever happen. They're now best friends and I have two beautiful boys and I kind of had a forced break in the middle of my career. Um, yeah. And then... I guess that's what got me to where I'm at now. Um, we met Coach Ben Rosario when he moved to Flagstaff in 2014. And he said, I want to put a training group together. And I want it to be a real professional group, different than any other group out there. And I want you and Ben to be on board. But um, I was still pregnant at the time. And he said he would still coach me through that. And then I had to tell him I was pregnant again after. Uh, so it's amazing all the people that stuck by me when I had two back-to-back -back pregnancies. Um, yeah. And then Hoka signed our group uh, shortly after that. And then it's been, I don't know, ever since then, it's been an amazing <laughs> story and timeline. But then you're sort of leaving out the part, coming back from two kids and starting to like dominate everything. So was there any doubt when you had the kids that like you would come back to this form 
the picture that went viral was that when you were pregnant or you posted it afterwards like that was a uh, postpartum that was right before the 2016 <clears throat> olympic trials um basically i really i still wanted to run the 2016 marathon trials and my heart like wouldn't let go of it but i was only going to be five months postpartum and in my head i was like stephanie this is so stupid like you're not going to make this team. What do you think you're going to do? People, women are running 224, 225, and you just had a baby five months ago. And it took me all the way until a month before to actually like accept that. Um, so once I accepted that and realized I should just be a spectator, I focused my efforts towards track. And then um, at Stanford, which I would have been seven months postpartum, I ended up running 32.14 and that was one second under the Olympic standard and I was like okay like maybe I have a shot to possibly make this track team um, but then just postpartum caught up to me my pelvis started hurting and I just was having a lot of issues and about a month before I had to take like three weeks off leading to the trials um, and realistically I shouldn't even run the trials but I wanted to, and I don't know, I finished 21st place and it was <laughs> one of the worst races of my career. But, um, that was a moment where I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to come back from these two kids. Like women are running low 31 and I just ran 34 minutes at the trials. But again, that stupid voice in my head just said, keep believing and don't give up. Um, and so I kept doing coach Ben's training and I dropped out of a lot of workouts cause I couldn't handle the paces but he just believed in giving them to me. And um, it probably took me a full like two years to really absorb his training and to actually see results in races of that training. Um, like the end of 2016, I ran CIM and that was my first marathon postpartum. I was 15 months postpartum and I ran 232. And it honestly was like a disappointment to me, whereas so many people were like, dude, this is great. <laughs> Your baby's 15 months and you ran 232. And it did show me that I could get back to the highest level if that was like a bad day for me. Um, but I just, I wanted more, I guess. And uh, I believe there was more in me. But then, you know, as you said, World Cross happened in 2017. I snuck on that team and then I got 22nd at World Cross. And then I brought my 10k time down to 31.59 and I was like okay like I'm making steps they're not as quick as I want but I'm getting better like each month and each year so I just had to keep like believing and then yeah it took up until probably 2018 where I really started to like believe in myself I started to believe in how fast I was that I could kick people down because I always got out kicked in races and it was just a mindset um, I think the race was uh, Rock and Roll Arizona 2018. I went out there to just do like a easy marathon pace run. And Ben's like, I just want you to run like 540s, 545s. Uh, this is very early in training. You know, we're not that fit. But there was a girl in the race, um, Elvin Kibet, who she's married to Shadrach Kipchatir. And she started to run 540s. And then she started to run... Uh, 535s and I'm like I'm just gonna go with her and see what happens <laughs> and of course the competitive side of me took over um, and he said I could 
he gave me the green light at 10 miles. And if I was with someone, you know, I could start racing. So we had already been running like low five thirties. And then at 10 miles, there's this big uphill you do in Phoenix. And then you do a turnaround and you come back down. So I just put the hammer down. And I think that next mile was like 522 and she was still right there. The next mile was like 518. And I didn't know her at the time. I'm like, how am I not dropping her right now? Um, and then with about a mile to go, she went ahead of me and I said, I guess this is it. Like I'm done. And that old narrative of you get out kicked was in my head. And then something just switched. And I'm like, no, you're not done. Like just go around her and wait till, the, wait till the finish. Like you have half a mile to go. And I went around her and then we were neck and neck with 200 to go. And then I just sprinted as hard as I could. And I won the race by a second. I think we ran like 72 30, 72, 29 or something. Um, yeah. And then that honestly set the tone for 2018. And I just started to believe that I could outkick people. That's pretty cool. I'm kind of looking back at your races and I'm looking at nationals every year and saying, oh, she got confidence here or whatever. But it's, you know, one of these races I would never have thought about. Yeah. And then I just told myself that year, I said, nobody passes you in the last mile of any race. And in 2018, uh, Besides New York Marathon, um, I never got passed in the last mile by anyone. And that was the really cool thing that I held myself accountable. I mean, yeah, it was a great, great year last year. And then it's gone pretty well this year, too. And just listening to your story, you're talking about, one, you're a dreamer. You keep sort of, you know, aiming for that Olympics, which is great. But then you're, you're talking about, like, how you believe. And that reminded me of your Instagram this week. Essentially, you said, I firmly believe in the power of your thoughts and how your body perceives things. I felt like garbage the last few days heading into Sunday's race. I was supposed to get my period Saturday, and as many women experience, PMS symptoms can be dreadful. I had a poor tune-up workout on Wednesday in Flagstaff, and honestly, I was worried if I was doomed for the race. All my training has been super solid, and my thoughts of feeling crappy were getting to my head. Amazing how we can almost let one bad workout trump the accumulation of so many successful ones. I have to skip the next part because I'm not a woman. Um, wow. No, I'm reading it. Wow. I hadn't gotten down to all this part. <laughs> uh, my cycle came right on cue Saturday night. I felt bloated and my digestion was all kinds of crazy. Like I needed the bathroom about two minutes into the race. I wore bulky underwear under my buns, which looked awesome, I'm sure. I mean, as a man, I never knew this happened. <laughs> this even goes on with you guys. I did so because racing with a tampon postpartum well, I should have read this before we got on the air. I'm sorry. There's just no telling what's going to happen down there. I share this so we, so that we, you can understand we don't always feel invincible, like invincible superheroes when we race, but we can still achieve things when we feel bad. For me, this win is important mentally because I didn't accept my body telling me how bad it felt. I had to tell my mind to shut up in the race and just run. I believed in my fitness. I believed in the chance to find out how much I wanted it. I mean, that's just a great story. I think everybody can learn from and either like one thing i'm amazed with is like the top people in the sport they don't have bad day they don't have bad races very very rarely right like once these people figure out how to win you rarely see them have a bad race right they can't always be on their a game but i think they've learned that they're confident they believe in themselves they know hey i had a bad workout i don't feel bad today well i can still give it a go i can still do pretty good I mean, do you feel like like a different runner when you're in the line now i do i just think like I've run through feeling like shit in workouts and <clears throat> in training and 
there's this perception that you have to feel like awesome in a race or I've never had a race where I'm like, this is so easy, like never. And I think that's a gift because I don't ever expect it to be easy. I expect it to be really hard and I train hard. And there's this great quote. It's like, I don't, I don't train. So the race feels easy. Like it's going to be hard. I train so I can tolerate that hard. And so that's what I feel like. I just tolerate that. And I've always believed that if I'm firing and all my blood levels and everything and I'm healthy, I like to believe I can go through more pain than some people. And that's how I beat people um, in certain races. And so that, that has grown as I've gotten fitter and stronger over the years that I just can, can dig down deeper. I mean, it's a cool story that you figured it out. And now you're like a full-fledged professional. You got Oka sponsoring you. I saw you have a bed sponsor. I do. <laughs> What's that called? Um, it's, yeah, it's Bedgear. Uh, they were the official uh, mattress and bed sponsor of the New York Marathon. Um, and I ended up getting contacted by them. And I met their CEO, Eugene Aletto. And one, like at this point in your career, you get a lot of people like reaching out to you on social and they're like, we think you'd be a great fit. And it's all like, most of it is crap. But like what I loved is I actually loved their mission statement and they loved mine. And it was kind of this natural fit that I'm like, yeah, like I actually believe in wanting to promote you guys because I believe in your company and I believe in, uh, I believe in the beds. I believe in the pillows. I believe in the sheets, like the whole idea behind we go out and get fitted for shoes and gear but we're sleeping most of our life and we're sleeping to like recover from training. Why don't we pay that much attention to like our sleep environment? And so that's why I just kind of got on board with them. So they sell mattresses? Yep. And maybe I need a new one. You do. Yeah. They're based in Long Island. Uh, it's weird. As I get older, not quite a third. I used to spend a third of my life at least asleep. Now it's probably slightly less. <laughs> I moved to New York this year. I got married, but my wife likes the bed better than me. We got to find something. I'll, intro- I'll introduce you guys in New York when I come. <laughs> All right. I'll check it out. And like picky bars, how involved with that are you and some of these, these other things? Yeah. So Lauren and Jesse run the business basically in Bend and it, it takes honestly more effort to involve me on a day-to-day basis. So I'm not involved there. I'm just involved in our big decisions. Um, and then I try to be, I guess, our most active proponent, like they're what I eat before every race and workout. And my kids are obsessed with the snacks. And um, I just try to be really vocal and share them everywhere I go and really spread the word about them. That's kind of my best role right now. You guys are now, I'm trying to think where I saw you guys. It's like one of the bigger stores. We're in REIs across the country. Um, we're in lots of like uh, local groceries, like in Eugene and Market of Choice and the Pacific Northwest. And then our biggest thing is our picky club. And that's where people can get like the monthly subscription. And it just automatically comes to your door and you can pick your flavors and how many you want, which is kind of cool. You don't have to think about it. And it just arrives at your door. Oh, I, I think I haven't done the picky club. Maybe it was my grocery in Texas or something. I was like, wow, if they're here, they're really, they're really making it. Now. <laughs> yeah. kind of cool. Well, you got a lot going on and then you have two kids on, t- on top of it and are doing all of that. Do you think being busy, helps your running? I do. I No, I think it's, you know, a, a busy person is a productive person. And I just, I've never had the personality. Yeah, I could watch movies all day, like when I was younger. But now, like, there's just so many things. I just want to, like, help so many people. And I, I'm always, like, 
driven to certain causes and I want people to like live their most awesome life. And so I'm trying to find ways to make everyone I come across like do that. And it it just keeps me busy. So I'll be answering emails from fans or trying to do promotions or write blogs or I don't know. I just like, I'm so drawn towards the process and the passion of like making our sport better than when I got here and just making people's other people's lives better that it's the only way I know how to operate. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, as a successful professional runner, you get this opportunity to influence a lot of people and and I'm glad you're you realize it and enjoy sort of having subtle influence on people's lives cuz you know, you don't know what it might be a kid, it might be an, an adult out there. A lot of people I think can learn from your story. Couple quick questions. I'd ask John and Robert um, what they wanted to ask you. And one was two of the questions we kind of touched on is like, how has she come back so well from the kids? And they were kind of asking, maybe it's related to the childbirth, but like Sarah Hall's never had kids and she's running very well in her thirties as well. Do you think there's something with women running well in their thirties or my general, are we just generalizing too much? I mean, there's men running well in their thirties as well. Yeah, I th- you know, the biggest thing, and this isn't a knock, but like when people were first like, oh, wow, post kids, <clears throat> sometimes I have to say, well, I was good before I had kids. <laughs> and so I think some people like did forget that about me, you know, like, I had run decent times and I'd run 229 in the marathon. I ran 70, 53, uh, 3220 in the 10k. Uh, before kids, I just think I wasn't in the right training program and I didn't have coach Ben's workouts. And so I think what happened was then I had kids and it takes, you know, that was a good three years of 18 months of pregnancy and then another 18 months of trying to come back from them. I started doing his training and then now you're seeing three and a half years postpartum of my last baby. Now it's all starting to come together. And honestly, like, I don't even think I've touched on what I'm capable of running. And that's what's like really encouraging that everyone's really excited for me and I am too, but I still think there's like a whole lot more in me. Um, And I think, yes, women, as we get older, like we do, we get more testosterone as we age as well. So I think our recovery ability is a little higher. You know, as we get into our thirties, we have a little more muscle mass. Like that's why you see women can like lean out and get more muscular into their thirties versus like when you're in your twenties. And I think that is the reason too, why if you just can stay healthy, you're just seeing all this accumulation of training. Interesting. I didn't know the testosterone thing. Well, because think about it, we go in, we go into menopause, so you're you're actually like losing the estrogen and so gaining more testosterone to a point. You don't we don't when you have too much, yeah, then then you don't want that. Robert asks, what do you consider your number one accomplishment? Give sport. Oh, okay. I was like giving birth to Riley and Hudson. <laughs> I'm like in the sport, but right. okay, giving birth. I got that one. Um, in the what about sp- running. Gosh, that's really tough. Um. I mean, I thought it was going to be winning Peachtree last year. And then I would have thought like winning the title here. But part of me almost thinks it's going back to getting third at USA's on the track last year. That was like a really big moment for me to realize I don't run track all the time, but I can still compete. Um, and it, it was a great feel that I ran against too, you know, getting third behind Molly Huddle and Mariel Hall. Um, that was like a huge confidence booster to me. So that, yeah, I would say that would be the highlight of my career. 
so far. It's funny because like we're so focused on who wins the races and at nationals there's a lot of races going on. And now I'm looking at the result, like you beat Emily Sisson. <laughs> well, yeah, it's cool if it worked that way. They're like, oh, cool. Emily Sisson just ran 3049 and 223 and I beat her. But running doesn't work that way. You know, I think she had had some hiccups in training, so she wasn't 100%. But it's still like we were neck and neck. You know, we were kicking that last 400 together um, and I was able to outkick her. So that, that was a cool moment for me. And I'll take that going into this year and the track trials next year. Yeah, so if you make the world's team this year, will that mess up your marathon plans? Because worlds are so late, or you haven't thought that far ahead? I haven't thought that far ahead, but um, I'll have to see what Coach Ben wants me to do. It's a good problem to have, it right? Is. You... It is, it is. All right, so I'm going to start asking people to give one piece of advice to either like a high school, I, guess, I say high schoolers because I think kids sometimes know nothing about running, but if you don't want to do high school, what's one piece of advice you'd give to runners out there? I mean, I happened to tweet it yesterday, but it's something that's been on my mind. And I said that like I had never won a big race in the first five years of my professional career and a national title took 10 years. And I didn't PR in the marathon or half marathon for whatever, six or seven. And I just said, be in it for the long game. And I think that's so important because everybody wants to be good yesterday. But if you can just stick with it and like never quit, you will start beating the people that either do quit or don't make it as far in the sport. And you'll start like reaching like your true potential if if you just, yeah, stay in it for the long game. I think that is great advice. And I think too many people want instantaneous success. And I think that's one of the best things about running is I don't care how talented you are at running. You can't be good unless you put in the work. And sometimes the work takes years. You are my, you're the one runner I'm allowed to root for. So I'm going to be rooting for you big to, to make that Olympic team. Thank you. I appreciate that. And thank you for your time. As I said, this would go more than 30 minutes, but that's because it was so interesting. <laughs> well, thank you. And I hope Flagstaff still is super cool. It's like a, it's like a running Mecca now. I can't believe, like, I, I can't believe how many people are out there. It is. It's really awesome out here. Yeah. Well, I'm jealous. I miss it. But yeah, what's your next race? Uh, the New York Mini 10K, so the US 10K champs. June 9th? Yep, June 8th. I'll check my calendar, but yep, I better be, be here. there, yeah. <laughs> well, I hope to see you then, and uh, thanks for your time. Here's a real quick bonus story with Stephanie that came up after what we thought was the end of the podcast. Yeah, so my sophomore year, we found out um, that my dad's company had gone bankrupt and the money that was like left to us basically was zero. And my mom was going to have to pull me out of school. And um, it was like devastating to me because out-of-state tuition was really expensive since I was from Arizona. And an article was written about me in the Santa Barbara newspaper. And then Coach Dolan uh, called me into the office next week and he said, Stephanie, somebody read your article and an anonymous donor wanted to fund the rest of your college career. And I don't know, that was close to 60 or $70,000 just by simply reading my story. And it was like overwhelming. And I'm like, how am I ever going to repay this person? And since I can't ever repay them, that's like always in the back of my mind in life. Like I want to make people's lives better. And I want to just try to give back in a way because you, you never know like who is struggling or who you can help. And I think that's what makes me like hustle in so many ways, wanting to try to like, yeah, change people's lives in whatever capacity I can because somebody changed the trajectory of mine. That's a crazy story. It is. It really is. Okay. Now I got to go pick up my kids. <laughs> Okay, thank you. Okay, bye.